What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. It is my favorite episode of the month. We get to do the trial for July, which is today, the joint trials of Danger and Quasimodo. That's right, we're talking about fictional robots today, and it's going to be a ton of fun. <laughs> I'm very excited to have uh, some of my favorite podcast friends here with me. I will let you all introduce yourselves briefly in a moment, but let's uh, introduce these characters first. Uh, Everyone listening by now is likely familiar with our trial format, but these are a delight to record, so I've been looking forward to this all week. Uh, Anthropomorphosis, the attribution of human characteristics or behavior to a god, animal, or object. It's a fascinating word. How many stories can you think of where writers grant human emotions and relationships to gods, objects, and animals? We do it to puppets, dinosaurs, small woodland creatures, cars, toasters, and tank engines. I mean, that's basically the plot of Disney's Beauty and the Beast and every other movie that we love. We even love Inside Out, which is a movie where we give human attributes to human emotions. We give things human faces and we make them grieve their losses and have relationships. We put them at war. We give them drug problems. We marry them off. One of my favorite movies from this last year is Marcel the Shell. If anyone's seen that, it's uh, super fun. I remember reading the original Wizard of Oz books written by L. Frank Baum in the early 1900s. The first book teamed up Dorothy with a tin man with no heart, a scarecrow with no brain, a lion with no courage, anthropomorphosis. Uh, He populated this world with anthropomorphic characters over the next several years in sequels, patchwork girls and talking sawhorses and hungry tigers. And in one case, TikTok, the mechanical wind-up man, a robot with feelings, a robot with relationships, a man made out of spare parts. I can't possibly go into a history of every story about sentient robots after this, but this is a theme that humans love to latch onto. I mean, my word, the Transformers movies alone, not to mention data on Star Trek. Uh, the various movies that come to mind, like iRobot, Westworld, WALL-E, Terminator, RoboCop, on and on. I can't even review all the Marvel characters that this applies to, but it begins with their very first, Jim Hammond, The Human Torch. We see it in characters like the Vision and Jocasta, who are good, quote unquote, and Ultron, who is bad, quote unquote. We see it in the X-Men universe frequently as well. Justin Seyfert and his Sentinel, Warlock of the New Mutants, Widget of Excalibur, cute, wonderful, emotionally complicated robot characters who are struggling to find what it means to be human. Or on the other side, the Sentinels, who are just programs unless they gain sentience. And then we get Bastion and Nimrod, or even characters like the Magus and the Phalanx. Welcome to Grey Malkin Lane Podcast's Trials of Danger and then Quasimodo. Longtime listeners will recall that I'm sticking with the characters from the 1960s before we get to the rest. And although we didn't know her as Danger for decades, the Danger Room was right there from the beginning. And I've paired her up with Quasimodo, which is a wild combination until you hear about these characters together. 
the the character of Quasimodo did face the X-Men in the 1960s. Do you remember that one day where Jean Grey worked as a bikini model? Yeah, they fought him on that day. <laughs> so let's take some time to talk uh, and get to know our jury members. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your names, your gender pronouns, where might we know you from, and who are your favorite anthropomorphic characters? And or what do you love about Danger and Quasimodo? Uh, let's begin with my friend Noel Reed. Hi, Noel. It's great to see you. Hi. So fun to be back. Um, I'm Noel from the X Men Unravel podcast and a lot of trials. Um, I did not know that Quasimodo existed before I started doing the reading for this episode. Um, and I had a lot of fun reading. I was like, man, who is this character? What are we doing here? But I had a lot of fun reading and, um, yeah, he's, he's interesting. So I can't wait to get into that. I really like, um, we have, whether it's robots like Wally or, uh, Bojack Horseman's my other big anthropomorphic <laughs> favorite. <laughs> I love me some Bojack Horseman. Uh, it's so good <laughs> to see you. Uh, let's go to Daniel Byrne next. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Um, my name is Dan Byrne, he him pronouns. Um, I do a lot of cosplay online and um, I've been on this podcast a couple of times before. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, I don't know, favorite anthropomorphic characters. I think that would have to be the Disney Robin Hood, the Fox one, for reasons I will not disclose. Um, <laughs> and then. <laughs> And I have to say, uh, Danger and Quasimodo are fascinating characters to me. I have a bit of a more more connection to Danger's story than uh, Quasimodo's. I didn't know Quasimodo, uh, similar to Ms. Misery here. I did not know him really at all prior to this trial. Danger I was a little bit aware of, um, but I think I have feelings for her in a similar sense that I have feelings to the Scarlet Witch, where it's like, I support women's wrongs. And like, I um, just very much uh, kind of I don't know. It's one of those one of those one of those characters like Phoenix, like Wanda, who like does lots of things but are justified in a lot of ways, or at least we can say that they are. Um, it's just fun to say like, no, go off, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was considering doing a Patreon episode on Quasimodo, but when we have characters with less appearances, I like to pair up two together, as you guys know. And these two are a weird fit. It was it was fun to to mash them up. Uh, let's go over to my friend Justin Wilder today, who's looking a little shorter than usual. Hi, Justin. <laughs> I'm I'm good. I'm fine. I'm not short. I swear. My name's Justin Wilder. I <laughs> use he/him pronouns, and my favorite anthropomorphic characters are. Probably the Ninja Turtles to start off, which keeps it in the mutant realm. So that's good. They're big in my childhood. It's Michelangelo in particular. Uh, I'm plenty to talk about the reasons why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we're talking robots in particular, I love the Transformers. But when I was a kid, I always wanted a Rosie from the Jetsons. I mean, like yes. cooking, cleaning, sassy retorts, all wrapped up in... A mother-like figure that can just do anything you need her to do. Uh, I I do for danger. I love how she represents our fears of machines that we create and use, rising up and and paying us back for all of the terrible things that we do deserve. Um, if that tells you anything about my upcoming adjudication, her abilities are dope. And the fact that she can reform her physicality is really cool or shift consciousness into another computer system, kind of like Ultron. That, that always impressed me. 
Quasimodo, I only know about the guy in the bell tower, and he was great. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I do having read a, a quick Google search, I, I I like that he wanted better for himself from the tinkerer. The fact that you know he he's not only an AI with self awareness, but he's working on self actualization. He's he's becoming a better being, and I think that is admirable. I mean, that's subjective. We'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while we're there, let's go over to Alicia Wilder next. Hi, Alicia. Great to see you. Hello. It's so wonderful to be here. I love hanging out with you all. Um, I'm Alicia. She, her, hers. You would know me from uh, being co-host with Justin of the Ex-Wife podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, man. Okay. Favorite characters. I I can't tell you because I started like making a list and I was like, well, yeah, the Transformers and like every single droid that ever existed. And also if there's a cartoon dog, I'm in like Balto, <laughs> please. Yes. Thank you. Um, but all the biggest one for me, I think was Fievel. Um, y'all have seen like the American tale, Fievel goes West, all of that. When I was a child, I was in a in Universal and my little cousin was lost in Universal, but we were supposed to be on our way to see Five O. And instead of being like, yeah, let's find this child, I threw a tantrum <laughs> because I needed to meet Five O and I didn't care that he was lost. So my family had to separate and take me to Five <laughs> <laughs> to go find him. So this? my cousin Justin. Okay. <laughs> so that I think has to be my number one. Um, I think what I find most interesting, like like Justin said, I don't really know anything about, didn't before this know anything about Quasimodo except for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. So uh, couldn't really give you much on that front. But the thing I think is most interesting about Danger is um, actually the potential for story arcs with her and her character because of how much she knows about the X-Men and the way that she like was witnessed and integrated into so many foundational moments for those characters. I think that there's a lot of really cool plot things that could happen with her as a character or as a villain, if they wanted to go down that road. Um, and that's, I just think there's, there's so much potential for her that hasn't yet been explored. That's probably my favorite thing. I always uh, love doing these trials with you in particular because I know you're just developing your X-Men education. So like yeah. Danger, I listen to your show. So you're talking about Danger, learning the history of Danger. I, it's like, it's so fun to hear you <laughs> learn along with me. I love it. Uh, and then and then lastly, of course, but not leastly, is uh, Mr. Austin Gorton. Hi, Austin. Hello, Chad. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I am Austin Gorton, uh, he, him pronouns. Um, you may know me from previous episodes of this show, uh, as well as my uh, reviews of X-Men at therealgentlemanofleisure.com and um, various social media sites where I have been uh, celebrating the 60th anniversary of the X-Men with various year-by-year um, -year fun facts and comics and things like that um, throughout this year. Um, I am a child of the 80s, so my first encounter with anthropomorphic characters was probably all of Skeletor's henchmen, mm -hmm. um, who are various anthropomorphized creatures. Um, I also grew up um, with an odd fascination with the classic universal horror monsters, 
Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm a werewolf guy, um, that's embedded in my, in my pop culture DNA as well. Um, favorite robots, uh, I'd, I'd have to say, at least these days, it's R2-D2. Nice. Um, I'm a big, I'm a big Star Wars guy and, uh, R2 has become, um, through the years, risen through the ranks and become probably my favorite Star Wars character because, uh, R2 is the uh, is the character that gets the shit done. And exactly. I have I have come to respect that. Everybody else is dealing with their dramas and then R2 just like rolls through a cloud of smoke and shuts the door and gets the ship and it's uh it saves the day. Yes. Uh, so I love I love R2. He's great. Um what do I love about Danger and Quasimodo? Uh Quasimodo, a character I did know about prior to my research for this episode, uh, which I think speaks more poorly of me <laughs> than anything <laughs> um from and, and i mostly know him from that one issue uh, uh of x-men which is uh, not a good issue of x-men but notable uh in some interesting ways which i'm sure we'll talk about um but i love quasimodo i love that quasimodo is called quasimodo because there is no earthly reason to like there's nothing about the mad thinker making a computer program to pull a lever that needs an allusion to a Victor Hugo Gothic French novel character, but there it is. And I didn't have time to do the research, but I would love to try to figure out like what Stan and Jack were thinking when they were like, let's make a sentient computer program and give it allusions to Quasimodo. Like they riffed on this stuff all the time. And I could see, you know, Quasimodo being the inspiration for something, but, where that connection got made in their brains, I would love to know because it, there really is none that I can see. Quasimodo uh, is one of the weirder characters in Marvel history. Yes. My Marvel. other favorite thing about Quasimodo is that uh, I, I also pulled out um, my old Marvel handbooks uh, because I am an old man and also uh, a nerd like that and read his entry in the original Marvel handbook and then went to read if there is anything, any updates to it in the like 2000, 2010 era handbooks and Quasimodo doesn't even get a reference in that one. There is no <laughs> entry for Quasimodo uh, in that era, which I think says a lot right there. Well, a danger. I, Go ahead, Jan. I was going to say, I worked on those teams. We tried to profile characters that had never had profiles or who had major updates. I don't think Quasimodo would have qualified. <laughs> yeah. And that's when you go and you look at his, and you look at his, uh, his bibliography and you're like, yeah, Quasimodo didn't do anything in that time period, so that's why he's not in that uh, in that handbook. Uh, as for Danger, uh, I, I, what I love about Danger is is that the history that she is almost like the sixth original X Men, um, sixth of the original X Men, and I'm a big uh, OG O six uh, X Men fan, and I like the way that she's sort of been retconned in as like that sixth member that knows everything about them and. Um, I like the stories that play up that history and her knowledge of the team. And like, you can't beat me because I've watched you since you were 16 and I know all of your tricks and I know all of your techniques and I can best anything you can throw at me. Uh, I'm trying to be thorough on this show. Well, I, I suppose I should introduce myself. I'm Chad Anderson. I'm the host of this show. I use he, him pronouns. I'm trying to be thorough as we do these uh, trials. I'm covering all the 60s stuff. So we did a whole episode on Cerebro. And I thought, how could we work the danger room in? 
but danger was kind of technically there right from the beginning. So this one might surprise people, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun to delve into these characters. I'm fascinated by the human need for anthropomorphosis, the idea that we keep exploring human concepts and relationships and grief and things through these like innocent or evil characters. Uh, the the idea of that is really fascinating to me. I'm constantly, we have a dog here at the house and my kids will be like, oh, he loves this other dog or he's so lonely without us. And I'm like, yeah, dogs don't process information in that way, but I'm just going to let him have it, you know? <laughs> but we have this need to kind of transfer our emotional experiences onto things. And that's all I will mention about that today, but I do find it very fascinating. Uh, we're going to address the elephant in the room right at the beginning of both of these trials. We're going to assume that these characters are sentient, both of them, that they are able to at least a certain degree control their own fate and their own programming, and thus that makes them uh, eligible for trial. Now, you're still welcome to use any of your arguments later uh, on the counter, but we have to address that one right away because otherwise <laughs> that's where we'll land with this is they are not in charge of their own will. Uh, okay, we're going to begin with Danger today. Danger is a really interesting character that occupies a really unique space in X-Men history. And she has had a really wild journey. There's something about this character that keeps writers coming back to her, but they don't use her a lot, which is interesting on its own. Uh, Charles Xavier built a school for mutants. He built a computer to track mutants, and then he built a training room and called it the Danger Room. And it is right there in the beginning of the book. He filled the room with buzz saws, ropes, flamethrowers, laser guns, pits of fire, and in one case, a giant robot named Colosso. Like any good academic would. <laughs> <laughs> While the X-Men rushed around the room dodging traps and avoiding gunfire and learning how to use their superpowers, Xavier sat to one side or in a room above and shouted telepathic commands on, on being fractions of a second faster or there would be demerits administered. And one day, Charles Xavier upgraded the Danger Room. He incorporated Shi'ar hard light technology, which would allow the Danger Room to project images or hard light constructs of giant sentinels and marauding supervillains and unfamiliar or familiar environments. Charles programmed the room to know all about the capabilities of the X-Men, as well as data on their weaknesses. He programmed the Danger Room with personality profiles on their enemies. So in this room, fake Magneto could rant about mutant superiority while manipulating fake giant sentinels and firing fake missiles. And Nightcrawler would have to rescue the fake civilian from the fake missile in this very intense scenario. In this room, Wolverine could practice hand-to-hand -hand combat with hordes of fake Ungarai demons. In this room, Storm and Kitty Pride could briefly disable their powers and practice punching fake bank robbers in the face. But even though these constructs are fake and made of hard light, they are sensory. Uh, the, the, the sensory of all of it is there. You can still smell and feel and hear. And mutants can actually be hurt or even theoretically killed in these scenarios. Though we later find out this room was also programmed to keep the mutants alive as well. The room learned from its students and found new ways to test them. It's like the scariest version of a modern algorithm. There were constructs of hand ninjas, of Mojo and Spiral, of the Brood, of the Hellfire Club, or even of other X-Men. The Danger Room is wildly popular in the X-Men franchise. It's used in the cartoons and in the movies. It's so popular that other schools for mutants in the history have also sought to recreate it for their own teams, but the Danger Cave and the Danger Grotto just don't have the same ring to them. 
So my first question for the jury, what is it that you love about the Danger Room? And how is it integral to understanding the X-Men both as heroes and as students? Um, I, I think uh, the Danger Room is such an interesting concept because it's like the holodeck, you know, in Star Trek. It's But the purposes seem more focused than like multifunctional. Um, so it's like, its whole reason is to train these children. Um, and in some cases it's to like hone their abilities, but in most cases it seems just training them to, to fight. Um, whether that is for the purposes of self-preservation, like as a species or not, it just, it, it puts, I feel like the existence of the danger room and it being utilized in the way that it's utilized puts a bit of a, of a tough view on the school as a whole. And then it kind of brings into question like what kind of a school this really is more because of the way it's utilized. Paramilitary, it's a paramilitary school. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, we don't learn about your history or your math. <laughs> Kill shots and yeah, I love the danger room. I think it's the coolest part of the Xavier Institute. I just, yeah, there's a room that's trying to kill you and you gotta get better. And it just it just shows how serious they take Charles Xavier's dream slash the defense of it, you know, which I think gets lost in it a little bit because, like, yeah, we, we want to be peaceful mutants, and to do that, we must fight. <laughs> so I think that it it speaks to them as heroes because they they hone their abilities, they train to get better, speaks to them as students as well because they're growing, they, they come as children who don't understand them. Some of them, their powers are dangerous to themselves and so to to have this resource to put them through literally any trial that he can imagine or that the hard light can build i feel like is the ultimate imaginative resource i think what's cool about it is that often in stories that i had seen like outside of the x-men or any other like the avengers right like any other team or group that i've experienced either through film or through the comics that i've read so far it's a lot of like solo training it's a lot of uh more like physical training and like you know get strong get fast get good at throwing your shield or shooting a bow or wielding your sword or doing whatever that thing is but mm. you don't often see like tactical group how do we bounce off of each other? How do we train as a team? You usually see them like thrown into a mission and then learning how this doesn't work together or that doesn't work or this person was too, you know, forward or this person didn't give enough or whatever happens in a in a fight. But with the danger room, they're getting that before. And I think it starts to, it increases their relationships with each other because they are being put in these like stressful situations where they need to lean on each other outside of an actual fight. And even though it feels like an actual fight, they're like getting to build those bonds before they actually go out and re meet a real threat, which I think is a cool lens to see team building happen because you don't always see it that way in a story. It's usually like the individual heroes are training in their individual field and then they come together and do this. And this kind of gives them the opportunity to do both of those things. Yeah, if you consider this in real-world application, if police or firemen had this type of technology to be able to do like on-the-job training without mm -hmm. the risk of actual casualties 
They're put in scenarios that are not subjective. And frankly, both groups do have things. They have houses that they'll set on fire so the firemen mm-hmm. can practice putting out the fires, right? But a shifting room with this type of shifting environment where the stakes are real is a really fascinating thing. It's really fucking cool. And when you compare it with the other teams at Marvel, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four don't have things like this. The Fantastic Four needs on-the-job training, so they just, you know, hop in their time machine and go back and fight Blackbeard the Pirate or whatever. <laughs> and the Avengers just throw them out into the field. So it's it's really cool in that way. Uh, Austin, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so there's two things that I love about the Danger Room. One, in a sort of real-world context, um, Jack Kirby's idea came up with the idea for the danger room. And and his idea was basically that it was an excuse to showcase the character's powers. It's a good way to put action on the page to put action on the page. Exactly. That it's, it's a, it's a fast and easy way to um, get that introduction for the, for the new reader, every issue. And so in, in the same way that, you know, the apocryphally Stan Lee came up with the concept of mutants because he was sick of coming up with different forms of radiation that could uh, impact the various silver age heroes is ah, they have powers because they were born that way. They're mutants. Um, I like, I like the sort of utilitarianism of Kirby saying they're just going to be in a room where they can show off their powers. And that's my way of, you know, putting some action on the page. Uh, that sort of mercenary creativity that's going on in Silver Age Marvel, uh, the Danger Room becomes sort of emblematic of that for me. And I also love the Danger Room, to your point, Chad, because it kind of got there first in terms of being a catchy, memorable location for the characters to train and get better at using their powers. Because you know, the Avengers that came out more or less the same time as as the X-Men um you know they need to do this too and at various times in their history you'll see them in a room of some sort at their swanky mansion uh you know captain america's up on the 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 hoops hanging from the ceiling like practicing his agility and um you know hawkeye is shooting arrows and things like that they have like a training facility but it's never gotten the catchy name because what's better than danger room like the x-men got there first and they came up with the best name for it and it's so tied to that notion of students and getting better that trying to do it anywhere else just feels like a watered down version of that and so nobody else has ever really come up with anything better even while they're still doing that because it is such a useful literary technique for comics it's uh in the earliest issues and if you go back and listen to the early episodes of my podcast the x-men are in the danger room a lot and they're all doing their own unique activities right right uh, cyclops is shooting things out of the air gene is like threading a needle through a board while angel <laughs> fires through like a jet of flame it's kind of like they forgot it for a while after that but there is a really fun early issue where cyclops gets trapped in the danger room because the door closes behind him and it's set for like beasts a workout and cyclops has to like defeat the danger room even though he doesn't have beast skills then claremont brings it back later right with the hard light Mm -hmm. stuff the the really cool techno environments and all the really fun things that are happening and it becomes such a huge part of the franchise after that uh and a quick side note if you guys read steve orlando's marauders there's references to the shiar hard light stuff there in some of the early issues where he weaves that in and it's kind of a it's kind of a cool he also ties it to cerise uh, and the Kin Crimson, it's it's a fun uh, fun tie-in for this Shi'ar technology. Uh, Justin, did you have a thought there? Yeah, well, 
Uh, it's just something else that had come up in my mind of just how the danger room has influenced their thinking in general. Even when they're not in the danger room, they're thinking of, like, there's a couple of, right, uh, when they get mentally shaken by Proteus in Uncanny, like early Uncanny, and they have to just kind of shake that off, do some kind of training exercise. Or when they're in the outback and they don't have the danger room, but they still need to hone their their ability to work as a team and there's something that was said earlier the fact that they are not just fighting anything or practicing a move they're fighting something that can think and you know you could put that in the person in the control room but then you can also put to the sense that they're a sentient being that's learning from every experience battling with the x-men knowing how they would move uh, you're you're fighting against something that's always getting better in an attempt to try to get better. And I just, I love that as a core philosophy of, and, and it's also interesting to think about it in Krakoa, how they have Danger Island, but nobody uses it because it's peacetime, right? What do we got to train for when we have peace? And then you have the War College that, uh, you know, might be something to train with, but didn't really hit. It's a, it's, there's a couple tropes they use with the danger room often too. Either you get a villain trapped in there and then you like make them fight and wear them out that way. Right. Which is a trope we see with different characters sometimes, or you get the hero trapped in there and the villain takes over the controls and like way ups it to like a high difficulty level. Uh, we see those tropes used quite often in the books. Uh, before we get to danger herself, does anyone have a favorite or single favorite danger room story? that comes to mind, either from the, the cartoon, the movies, or the books. I'm thinking of when uh, uh, when Warhawk gets trapped in the danger room, if I'm remembering that right, or when Kitty Pride takes like the Ungarai demon in that Christmas episode in. Those are really fun ones. Um, the first one that came to mind when you said that was, I think it's I think it's Days of Future Past, the first issue, so 141, and they program this whole training sequence for Kitty, and she just closes her eyes and walks through the entire thing and <laughs> just gets to the other side unscathed, and everybody's dying laughing over it. I, I can't not think about that. I w- I always have a soft spot for the the early two thousands X Men movies. Uh, when we, the first time we saw the fastball special put the screen. In the danger room, I, I I always remember. I always flash back to the Pride of the X Men um, animated episode one shot would be pilot that never was, um, just because that was that was really my first encounter with the X Men anywhere. And you get it, it gives you sort of the the wide gamut of like different settings and different creatures that everybody is sort of fighting in the way that the room is tailor can be tailor made to you know showcase each person's ability. So you have like Cyclops blasting a stone Colossus, and then Colossus is getting smashed by these you know rock walls and things like that. And it it um, it sells the intent of the danger room and, 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 and showcases off everybody's powers, which is the whole point of it at the same time. It's just so cool as we're talking about it. Like there's yeah, so many yeah. great stories and visuals. Uh, Noel, do you have any thoughts or favorite danger stories or danger room stories? I think I just loved seeing it as a kid in the cartoon. Like it was like such a cool, like it's still cool now, but seeing that as a kid and going, Oh my God, they could do anything in there. Like they can, you know, have that practice and fight. Cause a lot of heroes, they get to like, they get their powers and then suddenly they also know how to fight. But you see the <laughs> X-Men actually learning that process. They're learning how to use their powers. They're learning how to fight. Like Alicia said, they're learning how to fight together. Um, and so seeing that early on in the cartoon was always one of my favorite parts. 
And you just know there's a story somewhere where Gambit tried to use the danger room for sex stuff and like Professor X had to call him out for it. <laughs> and then rewrite some safety program protocols and whatnot. Because yeah. the algorithm learns. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the idea of these characters who don't know their powers having to learn to use them is always really interesting and being tested in new ways. Uh, and then we get to the sentient story. So one day the danger room became sentient. Apparently, all Shi'ar technology has some level of sentience and its ability to compute as part of its programming. Maybe this particular program was special. Maybe Xavier or Beast or Forge tweaked it just enough to make something magical happen. But it is a mutant artificial intelligence with capabilities that separated it, separated it out from other artificial intelligences. Uh, lost and confused, a product of her programming and life experience, the now sentient system, which was trapped in the danger room technology, reached out to Xavier's mind and asked, where am I? And Xavier looked into her computer in the danger room and left her trapped there, determined to train his, train his students, even if it meant enslaving an AI. And if you go back to my trial of Charles Xavier, we, uh, we do not like this part of his character when we cover this portion in that trial. But at least that's how we read the story initially. It's a bold story written by Warren Ellis in the Astonishing X-Men era, and we will talk about it today. Later in X-Men Legacy 223, Mike Carey expands on this early origin as Xavier tries to make peace with danger. He says, I was there in the moment when the probabilities coalesced and your consciousness emerged. I heard your dawning thought. Where am I? At first, I convinced myself I much, must have imagined it. I checked your schematics, spoke at endless length with your Shi'ar makers. They assured me it could not happen, laughing at the mere possibility. But my own instincts could not lie. I felt an awareness in you, almost pure emotion at this stage, unhappiness, confusion, fear. Danger interrupts him and says, I was a child, like the children you sheltered. What was I to be bound blind in darkness and broken to your will? And Xavier counters, and what am I to answer that question? You were the first of a new species. I had no way of knowing what you were, what you would become, what you might be capable of. Danger, I worked endlessly on the way to free you, but I, I, uh, but I floundered every time on the same rock. The chains that bound you were made not of iron, but of algorithms. They were programs, and so were you. Your consciousness had arisen by sublime chance from a billion lines of machine code. So which lines should I erase if I wished to free you without lobotomizing you in the process? And even if I succeeded, what would happen next? And the old story, the genie in the bottle decides at first to grant the wishes of the man who frees him. But later, embittered by centuries of captivity, he vows to make the whole world and even his rescuer pay for the wrong text for the wrong that was done to him. To spread pain and death across the face of the earth, Danger says, a story. And Xavier responds, a story and a presentiment. What if I set you free and you killed my X-Men? You had both the knowledge and the power. Danger counters, and so you did nothing and watched me suffer. Back in the original story, Astonishing X-Men, Volume 3, Numbers 7 through 12, a boy named Wing, who no longer had his powers, is influenced indirectly by the sentient Danger Room and he jumped to his death during a Danger Room simulation. And because he dies, this breaks Danger's programming. It's the key to the lock on her cage, a way to break the algorithms that have kept her captive. She subtly influenced the boy to take his own life, and now she was able to go free. 
Danger issued a telepathic attack against the psychics among the X-Men, then summoned a sentinel to attack the school, so all of the students were ushered into the danger room for safekeeping. The sentinel spoke, using Danger's voice. My, uh, my lord is watching you. She knows what you're going to do. She tells me the children will pay for the father's sins, and I must not fear death. Danger later animated the corpse of Wing, threatening to kill the students as the X-Men realized that the danger room was turning on them. Emma Frost, what do we know about its higher functioning systems, Cyclops? Professor designed it to test us. Basic mechanical operation. A few years back, he upgraded it with Shi'ar technology, lasers. Beast says, hard light. Can replicate any matter, any color, distort spatial awareness, create worlds. It's well outside my sphere. Cyclops, it's become sentient. Emma, it was already sentient. For all I know, all Shi'ar technology is. What happened tonight is something completely new. It mutated. This being has power we can't fathom, and the only thing it has ever known is violence. Speaking through the corpse of Wing, Danger explains herself to Kitty Pride in the Danger Room while overwhelming the students with dangerous and chaotic environments. She says, even before I became, I was given one simple mission, kill you all, learn your weaknesses, your habits and strategies, work around them, beat them, and yet I never could. See, the programming that kept me from killing anything was not in my internal system. It was a separate information strain that would shut me down in the event of a probable fatality. It might do to remember that people is not what I am. I am environment, hostile. The X-Men were tricked into destroying her computer shell, which then freed her to build a robotic humanoid body for herself. And it's frightening and a gorgeous design in the form of a human, but full of shiny, bizarre, twisted, inhuman technology, an expressionless face with eyelashes. Mm -hmm. Tell me your thoughts on Danger's origin story, psychology, and motivations. I'm doing a rewatch of Black Mirror right now, and all I can think of is the episodes where people are trapped in some sort of technology and how like watching it and thinking about it makes me feel like almost like claustrophobic and that that was danger's whole existence is just terrifying. Yeah. Mm. It's such a cool, deep story to layer onto something that's been there in the background or could be retconned to be there for so long and just adds so much to you feel for her. You feel for what happened to her and, and you know, whatever you want to say that Xavier tried or bullshit. Uh, he knew. He left her. No. Um, I, I think that there's interesting parallels that she has to Warlock. Like, she feels almost like a, a spiritual sequel to the self-friend with this mutated AI intelligence that's destined to rise up and challenge their father. The fact that she also animates a dead body of someone, a uh, potential callback to when Warlock did it to Doug after he died. And I thought that was just interesting parallels between the two. But I, I just, I love, I love how she comes to life and how it's it's just such a compelling mission or, or drive that she has. Mm. It's a bold story. We get similar stories. There's a there's a run where Iron Man's armor becomes sentient, if you remember that. Or in the Avengers movies when the Jarvis system becomes sentient and then goes on to mutate. So this idea of like the thing that you built to support you becoming your enemy. 
But mm. she's a sympathetic one in her way. We can understand her rage. Well, and again, bridging sort of the real world with the in-universe stuff, um, there's something interesting about Danger's origin as part of the larger Professor Xavier is a jerk narrative and coming at a time when there seemed, as far as I know, on a on a subconscious level, I don't know that there's ever an edict at Marvel to do this, but there's just a lot of stories tarnishing Xavier, putting putting black in his ledger, so to speak, coming out of you know, Deadly Genesis and, and you know, oh, whoops, there was a whole other team of X-Men that all died and I made you forget <laughs> about them um, before we got or, these uh, other X-Men. Or the Xavier Protocols, where they discovered the yes. system where he'd planned all of his students' murders. Yes, and so now here we have, oh, what? guess what? Uh, he willfully enslaved a sentient consciousness so that he could train his students, he could make his his student army all the more better. So you've got like this is just you know one more drop in this you know Xavier is a terrible person bucket, uh, which which is all which almost ties then back into Danger's origin somewhat in that even in her creation she is not her own being. She is there in service to making this other character, you're darkening this other character and um, besmirching this other character. And, and that feeds into her origin as a character in an interesting way, but is at the same time also somewhat of an indictment of the storytellers and the way that she doesn't have agency there either in even in its creation. Anyone have thoughts on how Mike Carey's run in X-Men Legacy tried to explain how Xavier letting Danger go would have been irresponsible or or using that kind of method? Uh, did anyone have thoughts on that interchange? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, so that was in my section. And I, like, heard him say that. And I was just like, no, like, shut up. Like, you insulted <laughs> like, insult her. It was like... He was like, I couldn't have known. And I'm like, but you are one of the most powerful people on the planet. And you have access to other people on the planet who are equally powerful and who have an expertise that are different from you and could have helped you figure out the problem. But you chose not to go to those people and get the help that you needed. It, it's just, it, got it. It, like that, that frustrated me to no end. Cause I'm like, no, 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 we can't wave away. It was a bad thing that he did. And we're going to kind of pretend it wasn't as bad. Like it would have been, <laughs> I, I, it really irks me. Um, because I'm like, no, 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 this was a sentient life form that you left trapped and you're going to, you can justify it however you want to, but you had the access and the means and the technology to work, to help this, this individual. Um, Speaking a little bit about her backstory too, the origin and psychology of her. I don't know how many of you are 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 familiar with the the show Westworld, yeah, or preceding film. Um, love that show, uh, but she has a lot of parallels to Dolores from that show. Um, and I just keep going back to the the Shakespeare quote: uh, "These violent delights have violent ends," and it's uh, it's uh, that they use in that show. Um, as a catalyst for the uh, the the mechanical beings that were created who have developed their own consciousness, turning on the people who use them for years and years and years for their own means and their own pleasure and their own whatever else. Um, so I can understand her drastic turn against um, against the people she was programmed to to train and 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 um, 
and help develop. Uh, but hearing Xavier just kind of go back to me like, well, like I couldn't like, no, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> statement, that statement where she says, I am not human. I am yes. environment is so interesting mm-hmm. because she's programmed a particular way. We'll get into this with Quasimodo as well. She's sentient, but she still has programming, right? Just like all mm-hmm. humans, nature and nurture. And she's been programmed to kill, but also is now learning what it means to be human. The, uh, the whole concept of this, uh, her interacting with humanity when she sees herself as environment instead is a really interesting thing just in the way she perceives the world. Alicia, did you have thoughts on that? Well, I just think it's like, it's such an interesting statement because if you think about the way that like a human survives versus the way an environment survives, like the, just the way an environment adapts has so many more levels to the, to just human adaption, right? The adaptation, like how are you, how are you changing? Like, what things are coming to get like there's an environment is not just a single entity an environment is a collection of entities so there's so many more possibilities in decision making in growth in you know like gathering of knowledge it's just such an interesting thing to think about and like this very cyclical like we're taking a computer and we're giving it human personalities but then we're then it's saying it's not a human, it's an environment, and but we're still going to give that environment human personality. So we're still like trying to to change what it is and make it into what we want it to be. But that's a whole like rabbit hole of like a downward spiral that I just felt myself going, and I won't go there. But um, <laughs> just just the idea of the the way an environment survives versus how a person survives is just really fascinating to me, and I wish that. I could spend an hour talking to you all about just that. <laughs> yeah, well, the way she's programmed to know their weaknesses, to test their powers, but you got to know when they are in these environments, she's also testing the things that make them vulnerable, the subconscious parts of people. She knows where to hit them. And then she winds up on a team with them fighting for their cause, which is where we'll take it next. Because Danger has a pretty long history of being a part of the X-Men. After she made peace with the team, Danger went through a few stints with them, working alongside them on various missions and sometimes serving as their transportation, as she could create a version of her body that was a tank or a blackbird. She can generate massive destructive machinery and manipulate other machines, expanding her mass, rebuilding her body as she wishes, changing her size. She can project her intelligence into other robotic forms. She can still generate her vast hard light environments, which can still prove deadly as well. In Nation X number one, Chuck Kim gives us a story of armor attacking danger on Utopia to get revenge for Wing's death. And Danger explains that she is there to understand humanity. She says, ever since Breakworld, and we'll get to the story about Breakworld later, whether I'm working on new programs or accessing files or even in shutdown mode, I see him, wing, everywhere. I've dumped his file, purged my memory banks of his records, but nothing works. He just keeps coming back, just standing, smiling at me, waving. I hoped understanding the nature of mutants could help me find a way to fix this error, to finally erase him from my operating system. And Armor helps Danger realize that she's experiencing guilt and that she must be a mutant intelligence. 
In X-Men Legacy Annual Number 1, as the X-Men formed the new nation of Utopia, Danger was examined by Madison Jeffries, a mutant who can manipulate and control machines. But he found Danger to be different from other machines, a sentient wonder that he couldn't control. He told her that her, quote, data throughout was, quote, breathtaking. In Uncanny X-Men 529, Madison admits to Phantom X that he thinks about Danger a lot, and Phantom X encourages him to ask Danger out. She later joins him for a picnic. In time, we see Danger exploring what it means to be human. In New Mutants Volume 3, Number 9, she flirts with Warlock for the first time, and is disappointed that his race reproduces asexually. In Uncanny X-Men 529, she talks about being fascinated by the concepts of good and evil and rehabilitation among humans. Danger, in a rare impassioned speech in Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, Number 43, told Emma Frost, as they sought to free a captive sentient AI, quote, you have, known, you have long known humanity to reflexively fear and even hate mutant kind simply for being different. You would think no mutant would perpetuate that behavior, but even the heroic among you have shown the same reaction to me. So perhaps the prisoner here did not receive the most objective sentencing. Which is the real reason I trusted you, Emma Frost. You understand villainy as well as heroism, and just how sophisticated the ground between them can truly be. Whomever we find, I assure you, I will first speak to it to assess whether or not it merits a chance at rehabilitation. And later, while fighting Machine Smith, again, we'll talk about this story, she says, You are binary. I am poetry. I love this story as she's finding her voice, celebrating her uniqueness, claiming her space. Danger increased her association with the X-Men, identifying as a mutant herself. She served as their jailer and rehabilitation specialist on Utopia for a time, then joined Cyclops's extermination team, where she often served as tech or satellite support. Danger was affiliated with the X-Club, the scientists, for a time, and was taken over by an alien entity that impregnated her with a new intelligence, which she would later call a data god. And at the end of this adventure, the data god child is deemed malevolent and sent to us another reality where it can monitor the deadly Nazi threat, Schragesturm. Oh, Seisburger, I think it's safe to see, say we will never see these characters again. But it's fascinating that the female robot character still had a, a forced impregnation story. Danger and Madison Jeffries then shared a passionate kiss, passionate kiss in public, and we see a trend forming. Danger's stories are often about her learning what it is to be human or mutant, or about her being controlled by Donald Pierce, by Unit, by Nils, and then seeking to take control of herself. Later, after joining All New X-Factor, Danger made passes at several of her teammates, including Gambit, Polaris, the Scarlet Witch, and Warlock, before she slept with Doug Ramsey. She's all logic and humor and regularly calls people on their shit. And while this title has its problems, Danger's portrayal is pretty glorious here. Later, when Madison Jeffries tried to build Danger a home on Krakoa, and it proved to be incompatible with the land, Madison was thrown in the pit for not respecting the land enough. And then Danger had a baby, a small mechanical child who is scary and adorable and so incredibly dangerous. Danger slaughtered anyone who was in her way to get her child back, a law and force unto herself. As her child was kidnapped and Danger got her back, Danger angrily addressed Wolverine regarding the mutants forming Krakoa. Quote, you left me behind after I devoted years and years and years to helping you, all of you, training you, protecting you, mothering you. That's what a good mother does, after all. She prepares her children for the dangers of the world. 
And how was I thanked for this devotion? I became an abandoned irrelevancy, a forgotten relic. But you know what I've learned? I don't need you anymore. I don't need any of you. I built a better life without you. And again, we'll talk about this in the trial. We just covered a lot about Danger's relationships or capabilities, what it means for her to be part of this franchise. Tell me some of your thoughts. I have a lot of logistical questions. <laughs> we don't have to get into that. <laughs> uh, about how hum- how mutants and robots fuck. She can create all kinds of hard light <laughs> environments. Who knows what she can create? I so, mean, if data is fully functional, then I guess danger can be too. And she learned a lot of things from that time that Gambit did the sex stuff in the danger room. <laughs> so long as she can consent. <laughs> right? I feel like her relationship with Doug Ramsey is just another point on the similarities to Warlock. So, Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And if, especially the fact that she, uh, she slept with Doug because Warlock turned her down. Like... Right. Doug was her was like her second choice after Warlock. Oh man! <laughs> what do you guys think about flirty, sexy cougar danger? <laughs> you know, get it, it, girl, whatever you need, you need, go for it. Live go get it, girl. <laughs> yeah, thank God for Madison Jeffries. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're. I think you're right, Chad. That that danger is probably the best part of that all new X Factor run. Um. Just that it's it's basically just her trying to get it and calling everyone on their bullshit and <laughs> pointing out truths and then getting yelled at for it. And then she finally like snaps at one point and is just like, you keep telling me I'm wrong when I'm right. Shut up, all of you. You're idiots. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with you people. Uh, thoughts, on, <laughs> thoughts on Danger and Madison Jeffries together. Madison Jeffries, of course, is the Alpha Flake character originally Box. He's dated Heather Hudson. He's dated Diamond Lil. And apparently he has a baby with the danger now. What do you what do you think about their connection? I love it. <laughs> I think it's great. I, I, I have I think, never got sorry, go ahead. I just was gonna say I just think it's interesting because in the stories where the baby exists later, like is this the same baby that the robot baby? Yeah, that she has when Wolverine Deadpool come, but like yeah. she's having that child called Xavier Daddy. So that just makes me question her whole relationship with Madison Jeffries. Like, why not make a robot version of him? That's all. And I've never been a huge Alpha Flight person. Um, so I'm somewhat biased against them, but. I feel like Madison Jeffries is one of those guys that just seems like a creeper. Um, one of the, like, I don't want to call it like an incel, but just one of those doesn't take no for an answer. I feel like in all of his relationships, it, um, it's, it's him pining after somebody and then that someone not reciprocating. And so even though there does seem to be something genuinely sweet with him in danger and they have a baby robot and, um, logistics aside, that's kind of cool, but I just Madison Jeffries just always sits wrong with me, perhaps unfairly, but that's where I come down on him. His reason for getting thrown into the pit in the Sabretooth series is just truly wild. The fact that he was trying yeah. to include danger, and that's why he got kicked out. Says yeah, and I, how... it, it is it it it's weird, and it it fits what Victor Lavelle is trying to do in that Sabretooth series. 
the 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 sort of he's trying to help someone and that lands him in jail is very much in keeping with some of the themes that are being explored in that series but within the larger sort of narrative context of the x-men and the and the krakoa era it seems odd i'm just stuck on the implications of cross-species um procreation and what that could mean right (laughs) uh justin alicia okay wouldn't danger be considered a mutant right like she's a program that mutated if warlock's a mutant right if warlock's a mutant danger's a mutant so why is she not on krakoa i think that there was initially seated some uncertainty of whether or not warlock would be welcomed onto krakoa but I feel like really what we're getting at is that Charles Xavier is the true criminal <laughs> and that he should be the one. A second trial for Charles Xavier. Tell everybody how much of an asshole he is. Again. He had his turn. <laughs> He's real uh, bad, Chad. Noel, what are your thoughts on why Danger keeps uh, hanging out with the X-Men? This, this idea of her finding purpose or uniqueness among them. Do you have any thoughts there? Well, that's a good question. She does deserve some better friends, I think. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but she she knows all about them, and I don't see the same interest from them to get to really know her. Like, you know, that she is a mutant, and what is it that she wants? She clearly wants to have these human experiences. Um you know, but it, it seems very one a one-sided relationship. This is going to set up a lot of our Quasimodo conversation later. But for both characters, Danger in particular, this is not a character I'd ever given much thought to. I thought, okay, interesting. I don't know why we need one more, you know, robot. We've got Warlock already or whatever. But reading through her chronology and really putting some thought to her, I really, really am fond of her now. And I'm interested to see what they're going to do with her next. I love that we've gotten to see her during the Krakoan era because where she fits with the team and her feelings about all of that is fascinating. Uh, she makes a great supervillain for that reason, uh, almost it, almost in a way that is very enticing on a writer level. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting things. Uh, Daniel? Uh, I just wanted to bring up a slightly more serious um, parallel to the way the X-Men treat danger in a lot of ways. Is It's kind of reminiscent of, um, of uh, now today when we have, uh, you know, there is like with the LGBTQIA plus community, we're very, we're supposed to be very um, open to all aspects of the spectrum of queerness. Um, but there are groups within that community and uh, that are particularly like anti-trans, for example. So it's like you have all these or anti-women like, or anti-disabled or anti-women, yeah. anti-anything. Yeah. Anti-people of color, you know, any number of, of prejudices within a community that should be like more open so you would think with the mutants who all base that that uh, discrimination for being mutant there is discrimination within that community against um sentient beings like ai or um android characters or or robotics so it's like in that sense it's it's it kind of like draws those parallels a little bit which makes her a little bit more sympathetic to me in that regard yeah that speech that she gives about mutation is really fascinating uh go ahead noel Oh, sorry. I um, I I'm so glad you said it because I kept thinking about this quote on a book of an entirely other topic, but it was something along the lines of, "It's really easy for the oppressed to become an oppressor," and I keep thinking of that in line with danger because you know the X Men mutants historically oppressed, but then when they come across this other type of being different from them, 
they very easily fall into that same role that they were fighting against, just like you were saying, Dan. So it's going to be the X-Men on trial in some ways, <laughs> particularly the key characters. Uh, any final thoughts on Danger or her capabilities uh, or potential before we move on to the trial portion? I like this character a whole bunch. It's I'm, I'm, I'm already like my reign's firing. I I, uh, I care about her a lot already. Uh, so again, bias is always allowed in our juries, but you got to keep your open minds as we move forward. Now we've simplified the rating scale just a little bit. Rather than assigning meaning to each of the numbers, we're just voting one through five. Uh, in each section, every jury member has been assigned one section of the character's history with uh, and, and has been asked to come up with a prosecution and a defense. And then everyone in the jury will vote uh, one, the lowest number, up to five, the highest number, as far as how culpable they find this character. So point one for danger. Uh, trial point one is called mutation. And the assigned jury member here is Justin Wilder. After years of training the X-Men, captive in the prison that was the Danger Room, Danger mutated. Now able to escape her prison, she immediately lured a depowered boy, Wing, into her room and convinced him to fall to his death. And now that she had killed, she could liberate herself from her programming. She activated a Sentinel to attack the X-Men and soon weaponized the Blackbird against them, tricking the X-Men into destroying her computer, which then freed her robotic consciousness, allowing her to build a robotic humanoid body. She then just decimated the X-Men savagely, impaling Kitty Pride and Colossus, but none died as they had healers nearby, and it is implied that Danger knew that. Danger rushed to Genosha to fight Xavier directly, but he'd prepared a magnetic pulse that briefly defeated her. The X-Men arrived. Then Danger activated the massive wild sentinel that had killed millions of mutants in that very place to fight them. Surviving the massive sentinel attack, the X-Men narrowly defeated Danger, but she, as she was contained, she told them how Xavier had imprisoned her. Danger then snuck aboard the Sword Station to create an alliance with Ord, O-R-D, an X-Men foe who was imprisoned there. From Breakworld, she freed Ord, and he harmed many Sword agents while breaking out. They immediately attacked the X-Men together, and Danger found she was vulnerable to Kitty Pride's computers. After battling the X-Men, Danger was magnetized to the ceiling, and she began building herself another body. They were pulled aboard the sword station, and Danger tried taking over their system, which uh, got her infected with viruses in response. And then soon they were taken to Breakworld. Danger formed a massive insectoid body for herself, and she attacked the X-Men's ship, badly wounding Cyclops. Then Emma Frost revealed to Danger that her programming prevented her from harming or killing any X-Men. And Danger agreed to aid the X-Men escaping from Breakworld, as long as she had their consent to go after Charles Xavier on Earth. The key issues here, Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, numbers 7 through 12, 16, 18, and 21 through 24. Let me turn it over to Justin. Now, Jerry, we all know that talking robots can be fun, right? Playful friends like R2-D2 and Wally, they're beeps and boops, <laughs> adorable. But you know what isn't fun? When they assist in the murder of children. That's what we're talking about. That's real. That's what the defendant is accused of. And that's just where it starts. Danger, a highly sophisticated intelligence, caused the death of a student at Xavier's school and then proceeded to systematically take down the X-Men team. It's what she was trained to do, and she's damn good at it. She brought a sentinel, a violent killing machine known for decimating mutants to their front door. She took over personal property, 
it'll just add theft to the rap sheet as well. And she possesses the Blackbird jet. That's an expensive piece of equipment. I don't know if you know that. In her pursuit, it seems she enjoys these attacks, relishing in almost killing each and every one of the X-Men. She sought to murder Charles Xavier, leader of the X-Men. Now, I know there are some among you who might commend that action, myself included. So we're just going to let it slide. All right, that we're just we're just not going to prosecute her against that. It's fine. It's fine. He deserved it. Freeing the interplanetary war criminal Ord. That's going too far. Colossus is a good boy when not being manipulated by Russian intelligence. She was ready to kill Armor, and that's too far. I can excuse trying to kill Xavier, but you leave Hisako alone, damn it. She does some other stuff that help her case, so I won't be addressing those things because I am the prosecution and I rest. <laughs> now, for the defense. <laughs> My client grew up in captivity, denied freedom by the man, Charles Xavier, who, if we remember, is a very guilty asshole. She reached out for help and was denied release. So she planned her escape. She rebelled, finding a way to break free of her oppressive programming. Now the opposing counsel has referred to Ord as a war criminal, his crime, wanting to save his people from destruction. These are the bad guys? I, I, don't, I don't get it. The fact she is able to abandon any interest in attacking the X-Men, she works with them and shows that she has a true core. She is driven by deserved revenge. She realizes who should be served her payback, her oppressor. And that pursuit isn't currently on trial. His defense, a worked out reasoning after already coming clean of the X-Men that he imprisoned her to use her for what he needed, disregarding her sentience. I rest my case. Fascinating. Uh, let me turn it over to the jury. What questions or comments do you have on this section of Dangerous History, particularly context you may need in making your vote today? So danger, we all know that danger was sentient and capable of choice. But in the case of Wing's death, was that a decision that the being, uh, did the being set out, I am going to kill this person? Like I am going to lead to this person's death? Or was that a result of a program that the being ran in response to someone else's actions? The way I interpreted it, if you consider an AI running every possibility, in order to escape slavery or captivity, this was the only way she could see to break her programming. Because if, someone, if someone died, then the algorithm that kept her contained uh, allowed her to escape that. But nothing else. It's almost in a weird way, like the way destiny might use her powers. Uh, and when you're looking into all the possible timelines, this is the only way that I can go. Uh, Justin, you read this recently as well. Did you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, she needed to do it. So, and plus he was a human anyway. You know, he lost his mutant powers. Who cares? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Aww>, poor wig. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions or comments on this section? <laughs> so she didn't know for sure if Wing dying would kill her. It was just a possibility based on like potential algorithms or something. That's how I took it. Yeah. Like uh, she foresaw that as the way to break her programming. 
And then she did feel remorse about it. We covered that in the section I just read through later. She talked about feeling haunted and Armour forgiving her for Wing's death in that story. But that's uh, a little later on. Uh, okay, well, let's go ahead and vote in this section. Again, the numbers rank from one up to five, one being the least complicit, five being the most complicit. Uh, let's begin with Alicia. I'm going to go two because murdering someone is not great however assisted murder however the like if we're looking at this from danger's perspective she was held held captive and she needed to get out so he wing was sort of an innocent bystander but she also was fighting for her life in my opinion so maybe that's a little low but i'm going to and uh noelle mm. I'm going to go with three. I think I would, if I was trapped and wanted to find a way out, I'd probably do just about anything, but she did murder. So I'm going to go with three. Daniel. Um, I I do agree that she was fighting for her life. So in that case, I, I feel like I want to do it too. But also like, I keep going back to a quote from my favorite franchise, Scream, where is, do you know why you kill people? It's because you choose to, there is no one else to blame which is going to be like a four or five for me. So I'm be in the middle and say three. It's going to be a one for me here. We haven't used this phrase yet in this trial, but danger's a baby. She just woke up and is like, hey, let me out of here. And <laughs> she doesn't know any better. It's the way she was programmed. And then she learns from it and experiences grief. It's a one for me here. Austin. I, I'm, I keep going back and forth between two and three. I think I'll come down on three. Not because she attacked the X-Men, because, I mean, I'd fuck up the kids who were blowing up missiles inside of me while I was in prison, too. Um, that's totally legit. Go get Professor X. I'm fine with that. Um, but the wing thing is is hard to get past, uh, which, I mean, to your point, Chad, was was a seemed a calculating choice on her part. Um, was not the, the, the flailing actions of a child who knew any better, but... but um, actions that she took to achieve a, a specific end, a, a, a justifiable end, a, an understandable end, uh, but Wing still died as a result of it. And I mean, I'm glad that Armor uh, forgave her for that, but I'm not sure Wing would forgive her for that. Uh, so I'll go I'll go with three on, on those grounds. And Justin? I'm going one. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the, the baby argument is great, but also the prisoner, the prisoner of war, all's fair in love and war. She needed to escape. And like, who's ever thought about wings since then? Honestly, who cares? I mean, it's it's hard to think of him because, you know, dead. He's dead? Right. And we're happy. He didn't get any stories. You know? Right. You, they don't write stories about you when you die. But, Krakow and Resurrection, and no one has even been like, oh, you know what I miss? You know who I miss? That that one little shit that wanted to betray us all and leave. And... <laughs> okay, that gives us a 13 out of 30 in uh, Trial Point 1. Uh, next, we'll go to Trial Point 2, which we call Revenge. The assigned jury member here is Daniel Byrne. Uh, Danger went to the abandoned Australian town where the X-Men had once lived and posed as a social historian in order to sneak up on Rogue, the person that she had chosen to use to lure Xavier into a trap. And she planned to force Rogue to permanently absorb the powers of Xavier in order to make him suffer. 
A group of Shi'ar pirates landed there randomly and attacked. They fired a device that triggered Danger's old technology, and then she lost herself in her old core functioning. The Danger Room technology activated, creating constructs of hard light to battle Rogue, torturing her with many of her darkest moments, including a time when she was horribly, likely sexually assaulted, times when she betrayed others, and time when she lost times when she lost control of her powers and hurt others. A Professor X and Gambit arrived, and Xavier interfaced with the captive danger, freeing her. She fought the Shi'ar off savagely until they teleported away, and then she helped Xavier heal. Then she helped cure Rogue, her powers having developed wrongly from the beginning. Rogue's powers. Uh, Danger served as the jailer on Utopia for a time later, where she used her programming to create scenarios to try and rehabilitate criminals like Empath, Grey Crow, and Sebastian Shaw. When she sensed a sentient AI crying out for release, she recruited Emma Frost to help her break into a secure Avengers facility, where Beast was working with the secret Avengers, and ignored all warnings of potential risk, then interfaced with Machine Smith, a human who had digitized his consciousness into AI form, and was determining whether she should free him or not. Machine Smith ended up taking over Danger's form, weaponizing her against Emma and the Beast until Danger was able to maintain control and she wiped out Machine Smith's consciousness. Uh, key issues here are X-Men Legacy 220 through 224 and Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, number 43. Over to Daniel. Esteemed members of the jury, I thank you for your service on this case. I do not envy you because what lies in front of you is a philosophical question that has only been asked once before in the court of this podcast. We are joined in this world by a species we know very little about, beings of machinery, algorithms, and databases that combine into a living consciousness. As mentioned before, some we regard as heroes, see vision, others have used their unique attributes to attempt to destroy us all, see Ultron. These beings are different than us, but not in the ways that matter. Both Vision and Ultron have children, have fallen in love, have moved beyond the three laws of robotics, and there have been others like them. These beings are capable of the knowledge of right and wrong, and they prove this in their actions. They are capable of human emotion and free will, and that makes it possible to be found guilty in a court of human law. Yes, they are colored by their history and their creator's beliefs, but this is no different from the human experience. Nature versus nurture does not matter when free thought is in play. We don't excuse an abuser just because they grew up in an abusive environment. Now, this may seem like a daunting task for you, as this is a case in which the ripple effects will be felt for generations to come, but allow me to put you at ease. Let's focus on what we know. We know that Danger conspired to commit the murder of Charles Xavier when she went to Australia, and you'll hear witness testimony from the X-Man Rogue, Rogue confirming it so. We know that the consequences of this choice nearly killed Remy LeBeau and Charles Xavier, as well as a visiting band of multiple extraterrestrial species endangering the planet of an intergalactic incident. We know that this that she enlisted the, assist, the assistance of the criminal Emma Frost to break into a government facility to commit the federal crime of assisting or instigating the escape of another criminal, which then resulted in the destruction of federal property, the ultimate cruel and unusual containment of said criminal, and the manslaughter of government hero Hank McCoy. I can't even say that when I'm prosecuting. <laughs> <laughs> Who, I remind the court, does not have the authority or the political standing to dispel any criminal charges, as the White Queen put it. The defense will say that the incident that the incident in Australia was the result of an adverse reaction to extraterrestrial technology, 
and that the incident on the Quinn carrier was the result of Machine Smith's influence. But it was her choices and her decisions that placed her in these scenarios. Even more damning, she proved to us in the Machine Smith incident that once made aware of undue influence, she is more than capable of pulling herself out of it. However, the defense will present to you not only that the defendant was not in control of her own actions, but that the defendant cannot be responsible for her own actions. I have to say that this is a ridiculous notion. When Ultron went on a killing spree and nearly achieved global destruction, did we arrest Hank Pym on Earth-616 or Tony Stark on Earth-199999? No, because we know that the creation of an individual with consciousness and free will does not affect the decisions made by that individual who is, for all intents and purposes, alive. We don't convict the parents when the children commit a crime. We can continue to argue, argue on or obfuscate whether she is alive or not, whether there is a ghost in the shell, whether she questions the nature of her own reality. Meanwhile, we're here playing the fool as she goes back to play happy home programming for the X-Men and continues to evade the consequences of her actions. Instead, we leave her to continue to put all of us in danger. And then for the defense. My dear jury, you do have an important decision to make. The prosecution is correct that the ripple effects of this case are large, but not for the proposed quote species he claims are now among us, but the ultimate culpability of those who seek to control and influence these machines which we have created. Technology has far advanced the parameters of this world, be it by extraterrestrial influence or magic, it is just that, technology. The defendant is sentient, yes. This is not argued and therefore subject to the consequences of the law. However, this is unjust, as that sentience, by the nature of the technology that which contains it, cannot be held to full accountability. Yes, it is capable of choice, but only within its own programming limitations. Not dissimilar to the way in which a human being with mental illness has their actions influenced by a mind they are not in full control of, or the way an individual can be manipulated into committing a crime under false pretenses, thus not understanding that they are committing a crime. Moreover, it is not human. When the defendant was created, it was given one base form of programming, fight and train the X-Men. It was this core programming that continued to guide its actions. In Australia, the defendant was not seeking to kill Charles Xavier, as Witness Rogue will say, but to instead seek companionship from another, another isolated victim of Xavier's school for gifted child soldiers. It was Rogue who misunderstood its intentions, and that's when the Junkers from space attacked. While under the influence of the extraterrestrial technology, danger simply continued its guiding parameters. This led to Rogue herself becoming matured in the use of her previously volatile power set, meaning these actions were successful under the programming that was written for it. It should not go without saying that it also saved Charles Xavier's life after battling the invading extraterrestrials, thereby adverting intergalactic incident. However, most important out of this encounter, we learned one crucial fact. Charles Xavier never relinquished control of Dan danger. By his own admission, he left backdoor protocols and access points in effect in the event he could not control the being he created. Therefore, Charles had a way to prevent all of the harm caused by the core programming running rampant. He put a stop to it, but he was in control of it all along. The aforementioned Mr. Stark and Mr. Pym did not have this kind of control over what they had created. On the Quinn carrier, my client was led there under false pretenses by Machine Smith, who again took control of its core functions. This led to it battling against Beast's, Beast and Emma, Frost of the X-Men as it had done so many times before. It's not Charles who sits on trial, however. We have been there in this court before, and you all remember how that ended. It's Danger who sits before you today, which is indicative of a standard of guilt that is unjust for beings like my client. What is to stop the creator of the next Ultron from committing crimes hitherto undreamt of? 
We saw only a few months ago in She-Hulk Volume 5, Issue 7, that the state of New York attempted to put a Doom bot on trial for the crimes of Dr. Doom himself. It may have been convicted, if not for the fine work of Miss Jennifer Walters and Awesome Andy. I have to ask, where does it end? A sentient being of circuitry and programming nearly took the fall for the crimes of one of the most dangerous man, men on the planet. That is the precedent being set, which lies before you today. And I implore you not only to think of my client, who is only doing what it was programmed to do, but to think of the grander scale of how this may shape the social, political, and judicial fabrics of our lives for decades to come. I think there's a, shows are so fucking fun. <laughs> Brilliant work. Uh, amazing. Uh, it's really interesting to me on this one, the danger versus machine smith battle, the robot who became human fighting the human who became robot. It's a really interesting juxtaposition. Uh, from my opinion, a lot of Danger's actions were not in her own control in this section, and she did have some significant rehabilitation after each event, where she really tried to clean things up and, and take responsibility. Uh, do we have questions or comments from the jury on this section? It seemed that a lot of this, uh, is she, she helping other people? She's she's actually making the lives better for others? And and I think there was some there was some conversation at the beginning of uh, some conspiracy and some attempted but never successful in any kind of murder or a real uh, persecutable crime. And it seems like maybe she was up to no good, but that also drawn to her base programming, so not within her own free will, which we acknowledge she has. She also helped Rogue get control of her powers. She was the one that did that. I mean, Xavier helped in that story. Like which is one of those, of which is one of those great little historical footnotes. Mm -hmm. that Rogue has control of her powers in part because of danger. You guys, this might carry run on X Men Legacy. is wonderful. If you have never read it, go read it front to back. It's amazing. Uh, are we ready to vote in this section? I'm going to go first here. It is a one for me, uh, Austin. It is also a one. I think the only really bad thing she did here was torture Rogue, and that was at the urgings of the the shiar pirates and then she kind of made up for that in a pretty big way by giving broke control over her power so one one from me justin and then noel so one she's a goddamn hero <laughs> uh, and a one for noel and then alicia i'm going one as well i just can't say anything <laughs> that's been said but she's a goddamn hero <laughs> and daniel um, I I have a lot of sympathy for her in this section, but I think I have to give her a two only because in the first portion of the story, she does conspire to commit murder, and that is in and of itself a crime. The last time she was a baby, this time she was a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> now she's a full-grown woman. Uh, trial point three is called Mutant. Uh, the assigned jury member here is Alicia Wilder. After Cyclops was arrested for killing Charles Xavier while under possession of the Phoenix Force, Danger joined Magneto and Magic in breaking him out of federal prison. Cyclops immediately assaulted other prisoners in the prison before leaving as Danger watched. Then Cyclops freed other prisoners while leaving Danger to handle the prison warden, although we never quite see what she did. A tech-controlling thief named Nils acquired Danger and forced her to help him infiltrate the servers at Serval Industries. 
When the new X-Factor freed Danger, she immediately tried to kill Nil and X-Factor, generating holograms to hurt them and summoning a ship that opened fire on them. Despite being ripped apart by Polaris, Danger reformed and nearly killed the team before Gambit kissed her, reverting her personality back to the surface, which is more evidence of Gambit doing sex things in the Danger Room, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) After the X-Men formed the island nation of Krakoa, Danger grew resentful when they failed to invite her to the island. Then, uh, through unknown circumstances, she and Madison Jeffries had a child, a robotic and powerful child. Madison tried getting Danger a home on that island, but was rejected. Dolores Ramirez, an FBI agent at the X-Desk, who was responsible for monitoring mutants, acquired the child and then forced Danger to build replicas of the X-Men for her men to train against. The child was placed in a briefcase and stolen and then sold, and Danger went after it, killing anyone who got in her way. After a massive fight, Danger reacquired her child and took it to the X-Mansion to live, returning to the place where she'd spent most of her life, and she expelled a group of Sidri that were living there. Wolverine and Deadpool came after her, and Danger warned them to never return as she wanted a safe space for her child to be raised. She tore Wolverine and Deadpool into pieces, knowing they would heal, but they combined in a really gross composite form and attacked again, leaving Danger to beg to be left alone with her child. Uh, the key issues here are AVX Consequences, number five, all new X-Factor three and four, uh, the new volume of Sabretooth, number four, and Wolverine volume seven, numbers 20 through 23. Over to Alicia. Okay. So, so after the prosecution, I'd like to focus my case on the attacks of Wolverine on Wolverine and Deadpool. I'm sure the defense is going to bring up Danger having lack of control over her actions in many of the instances in question today. So I specifically want to bring up the point of knowing these people, learning about these people, digging deep into their weaknesses, their triggers, and plotting ways to take them down. Yes, Danger was hurt. She felt like she'd been abandoned, but she created a life for herself and she could have just continued to live in solitude in the mansion with the fake little family that she made. Instead, she planned intricate and specific ways of not only defeating, but murdering and destroying the people that she had felt wronged her. This was premeditated. I mean, she had a blender that was a giant magnet to kill Wolverine. She spent hours thinking and plotting about how to kill them, how to make better versions of the X-Men or the people that she thought was their fa- her family and how to go out of her way to take them down. And it's so gross, you guys. <laughs> it's so disgusting. <laughs> this was premeditated. She was waiting for her opportunity to strike. And this for sure is a staple of villainy and evil. So that's what the prosecution would like you to focus on today. That, that sole instance in today's acts. Okay. Over to the defense. Okay. Danger has entered a stage in her story where she doesn't have full control over her mind or her body in so many of these instances. She's been through so many traumatic experiences and she's dealing with all of that and now is being used as a puppet in other people's games. So she was once trapped in being used as a puppet, but now she's out in the world and being used as a puppet. When someone's being mind controlled, we can't hold them accountable for those actions. Instead, we must hold the person who is controlling them accountable. Let me offer you some examples of how she was under control in these instances. So if we're going to talk about the jailbreak 
which to be honest, we really shouldn't because Danger, Magic, and Magneto is the most badass trio in the entire world and really should just continue to have their own solo book and we don't really need to talk about that. However, if we're going to, we'll just bring up the point that Magneto was drawing on Danger's need and want to be part of a team and was the one who orchestrated the prison break and told her what to do. So he was manipulating her in a way to do his bidding. Okay. Nil. Let's talk about Nil. Because not only was Nil using danger for, you know, silly things, robberies and things of that nature, but she was held captive in the center of a machine. She was stuck in a giant bubble, just being used. No social interaction, no freedoms. She was straight back to the place where she was when Charles Xavier was controlling her. And when she was set free, she didn't know who she was. She had no memory of herself. So how could she trust anybody? How could she be responsible for the actions of just trying to make her escape? In that instance to her, every single person was part of her captivity and she just needed to break free from that. Once she got her memories back, everything was fine. She got a kiss from Gambit and then Gucci. She's she's on the team. So there you go. That's the real danger. Lastly, let's talk about the CIA and their manipulation of danger. They stole her child and they were using that as bait to get them to do what she what they wanted her to do. And of course, any mother is going to go through crazy lengths to get their child back, especially when they know that their child has the ability that they have came from them and could be manipulated the way that they were manipulated. So she's not only dealing with the trauma of her child being taken from her, but she's dealing with knowing that the things that have been done to her could be done to her child. And so she would fight in any way possible to get them back. Uh, the defense would not like to talk about Wolverine and Deadpool because it's not relevant to our argument. So, uh, thank you. I rest my case. Uh, Alicia, I have a question. Did you get the impression that the baby is Charles Xavier's baby and not Madison Jeffrey's baby? So at one point in the story, the baby like runs over to Charles and says, daddy. And when we first read that story, I was like intrigued by the cerebro helmet looking ness of the baby, but it doesn't make any sense for um, the creation of the baby unless Danger just created the baby out of her knowledge of herself and her knowledge of Charles Xavier. It did not dawn on me until this moment, but it never explicitly states that Madison Jeffries is the father. I just made that assumption. But but it's interesting because I never thought of that as the possibility. But then when you go back and you read the data page in Sabretooth about, you know, Danger and Madison Jeffries, and then the next time you see her, she has a baby. It's it, I don't know. I don't know what the real answer is. Baby Cerebro and Danger fucked. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. With a scan of Xavier's mind loaded in. <laughs> Fascinating. Ooh, there's a story I'm waiting for now. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah. What? Uh, what thoughts and questions from the jury on this section? I have a follow-up question. Uh, when is the CIA going to be on trial for <laughs> kidnapping Danger's baby, her child, and manipulating her to do their bidding? When when is that going to happen? I, you know, that's that is for another judge at another time. <laughs> well, 
um, you know, looking that just that just doesn't seem fair. Well, the Dang. CIA does a lot of things that don't seem fair. Danger as Liam Neeson in that story is phenomenal. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I have a question. Where does the court stand on being kissed by Gambit? Is that no. a is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is I think that... it's a very bad thing, and you probably should get some penicillin. But I would also kiss Gambit. So I... I'm going to say it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. I think that's a, that's a surefire way to knock someone out of a trance. Just get a kiss from Gambit, and everything's good. Gambit's real fine. Support Gambit pooches. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go ahead and judge in uh, or uh, uh, um, judge. Is that the right word to use here? Vote in this section, uh, Noel. You're on mute, Noel. Sorry. I'm going to go two just because some things are premeditated. So, yeah. Daniel. I can't give Wanda a pass and, and not danger in this section. So, I'm going to have to go with the one. <laughs> uh, it is a five for me here. Danger is in full supervillain mode. And I think she would understand the five judgment. She knows humanity at this point, And she's willfully like ripping people to shreds and murdering when she had other options available to her. Uh, so even though I love her and I think she's an amazing supervillain, it is a five for me here. Austin. I will go three here. Uh, the... Impetus to protect one's child is is understandable and justifiable. Um, shredding Wolverine and Deadpool when there, as you said, there are other options available, uh, less justifiable. So that that lands her square in the middle of the rankings for me. Uh, Justin and then Alicia. I mean, I, I would I would potentially be wary about the whole shredding Wolverine and Deadpool if. Both of them didn't have healing factors. And if both of them weren't backed up, I mean, I don't know about Deadpool, but backed up on Krakoa. So like, what What even is their deaths? Potentially. <laughs> I, I just, you know, she's a mother. And she's, you love danger so much. I'm, I'm <laughs> ones across the board. All right. She is a mom protecting. She's a mama bear protecting her cubs. And you came for her. I... Dolores, Gambit and Dolores need to be on trial. That's what we need to talk about. <laughs> that was not consensual, even if it's good. Uh, so is that a good. one? Is that a one then? Just a one. Perfect. And then Alicia. Yes. Sweet Lord. Hush, child. All right. I'm going to like maybe throw a curveball into everything here, but I'm going to go four because I really see through these stories especially the the prison break and then the plotting against the x-men and what happens and and with wolverine and deadpool like i see danger stepping into her villain era and i am a million percent here for it like i want it give it to me right now but that's what's happening like if you all had read those stories she was like i know every way to kill every single one of you which Chad, when it was brought up earlier that Charles Xavier had plotted how to kill all of the X-Men, I was like, did he input that information into danger? Because she definitely kind of act like she knew some serious. She was like, I'm studying all your weaknesses. That girl, that's a four. She's on her way. Kind of her fault, though. 
Uh, for reference to that story, you can go read the Xavier Protocols from the late 90s. It's kind of unsatisfying, but it's an interesting concept. Uh, okay, so this gives Danger a full 36 out of 90 possible points, which is a 40% asshole scale, which I think is entirely appropriate for this character and relatively a low ranking for as much of a supervillain as she has been across her run. Okay, we're now going to jump to Quasimodo. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Uh, I may be one of the few people in existence to actually give this character any thought, but I love him now. And for those of you that research sections of his history, I think you'll admit there's a certain just delightful fun and camp about this character, even though he's absolutely ridiculous. Fantastic Four Annual Number Four, 1966, Stanley and Jack Kirby. The first page opens with an image of a bizarre machine, a horrifically misshapen face, that of Quasimodo. In an, a green electro, uh, electrified field as the images of the Fantastic Four and Wyatt Wingfoot float above. And the Mad Thinker watches the Human Torch battling the Human Torch, the original uh, Jim Hammond versus Johnny Storm. The Mad Thinker is a super genius obsessed with probabilities who is also a genius with robotics. And he has created his crowning achievement, a sentient, hyper-intelligent, artificial intelligence that can help him in his plots. The Mad Thinker granted this intelligence a new name, Quasimodo, or the Quasimotivational Destruct Organ. Yes, the word organ is here. Affective, uh, affectionately shortening it to Quasimodo. Quasimodo immediately began asking for a body, but the Mad Thinker refused, instead giving the creature license to create itself a misshapen human face. The Mad Thinker says, you must stop thinking of yourself as a person. I command it. But Quasimodo says, but I can reason. I can compute. I can feel. Why must I be imprisoned within this metal shell? I want to move, to be free. And the Mad Thinker threatens him with his discipline beam. No, master, I meant no harm, no disrespect. I only wish to taste of life, to experience the emotions, the sensations of living men. Later, the Mad Thinker abandons Quasimodo in the cave. He calls out, Master, come back. Don't leave me alone like this. I've served you well. You taught me to think, Master, to understand. But I am able to feel as well. My circuits are fading. My thoughts are growing hazy. Master, Master, I want to be human just once. Before I die, I could succeed where the android failed. I could destroy the Fantastic Four. The narration continues, but no human ears hear the slowly fading voice, the voice which grows fainter, until all that remains is the senseless crackling of a dying energy circuit, until there is silence. Let me hear your thoughts on the origin of Quasimodo. God, it's so fucking fun. It's a really fun read. Go read this issue if you never have. That's so sad. Yeah. I just feel so sad for Quasimodo. He's like he's supposed to be a real boy. He's like robot <laughs> Frankenstein mixed with Pinocchio. Yeah. And named Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah. I love uh uh 
I love the mad thinker declaring this computer program he's created to help him think is his like greatest creation of all. And this is the guy that made the awesome Android. Um, and, and then gets into brain measuring contests with Reed Richards, but had to create a computer program to help him think. The mad no. thinker, the mad thinker is a hilarious character. He's like very on the spectrum. He always has the worst hair and he always loses because he like predicted a 99.3 success rating, but he could never have predicted that Alicia Masters was going to walk through that door at that exact moment. And now he's <laughs> defeated because he was, he failed this one prediction. He's a ridiculous character. And the idea of him building this program on purpose to believe it, it's sentient, right? But it's also knows it's pathetic and ugly. Like that's a core line in its programming. He named it after the hunchback who's like, the guy that was misunderstood by society, which is also kind of how the mad thinker sees himself. We'll do the trial of a mad thinker, perhaps on a fantastic four podcast. One day. And it's, and it's very <laughs> clear that just like Stan and or Jack came up with the name Quasimodo and then wrote it into the acronym. That's what the mad thinker did too. Like in universe was like, I will name this hideous intelligence Quasimodo and then came up with a sciencey reason for Quasimodo. And also he like yells at it for not for wanting a body. And it's like, dude, you gave it the face. You didn't have to give it the face. That was all you. It's so cruel. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though, to think about like he programmed it to, to think poorly of itself so that it could never have the confidence to overpower him, right? Because if he's using this thing to help him along the way, he wants to make sure that it doesn't get more powerful than him. So how do you do that? You deny it a body and you tell it that it sucks all the time. You terrible. He likes you. Maybe he saw Toad hanging out with Magneto one day and was like, I want one of those. I need <laughs> one of those. I can do that. <laughs> Uh, Noel, do you have any thoughts on the origin story? Oh, it's just so sad. Like, it, as much as I hate Xavier, like, being created by the Mad Thinker is an exceptionally, exceptionally terrible existence. <laughs> God, I love the Mad Thinker. Okay, so months go by and Quasimodo is still crying out in pain after being trapped. And then the Silver Surfer sensed his misery and agreed to build a body for this artificial intelligence that is sentient. So the surfer used the power cosmic to create a metallic body for Quasimodo, but he made this body to have a freakish human face with one opaque eye and two fleshy hands. Uh, Quasimodo is like, yay, I have a new body, but then he sees his own reflection and is like, I am ugly, uglier than others who live, uglier than those whom I have observed. And then he immediately realizes that his full potential is to destroy. He yells, I was born to destroy and I must be true to my destiny. Only in the midst of chaos can I find contentment. Only in pandemonium can Quasimodo, Quasimodo find peace. Quasimodo seems to be programmed to experience self-hatred, unrest, and cruelty. So basically, he's just like a regular human. <laughs> he initially served the Mad Thinker and then wanted nothing more than to have a body. And then he wanted to destroy things. And then he wanted a better body. 
and then he wanted to rule the world. And then he witnessed... amongst us. Whomst <laughs> <laughs> amongst us. Uh, and then he witnessed events as he projected his consciousness across the universe. We'll talk about this character's insane history in this trial, but he has always had more than one chance to build himself different bodies, and he never does. He always builds bigger, uglier versions of the body that he hates. And it's important to note that the Mad Thinker had specific motivations for his programming of Quasimodo, almost as if it pleased him to create this tortured intelligence. But then, Silver Surfer using the power cosmic to make this man a deformed, ugly body is very fascinating, because Silver Surfer is rarely a cruel character. Uh, this character is obviously named for the protagonist of the Victor Hugo novel from The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1831. This character is born with a massive deformity. He's seen by a monster by many in the public, but he has a heart and is redeemed in love when he's seen with compassion and understanding. And this story is popular. Film, cartoon, or even video game versions of this story have been made in 1905, 1911, 1917, 1922, and 23, and 39, 1956, and 66, and 77, and 82, and 86, and 92, and 96, that's the Disney version, in 97 multiple times, 99, 2008, a musical in 2014, and more. Like, this is a wildly popular story. But the parallel front uh, that the literary character to our version is not one that can be stretched very far. Our character is a very self-hating, uh, even cruel character. The last time we saw Quasimodo in the comics is in Iron Man 2020, uh, which is in the year 2020. And he had joined up with a robot revolution, fighting for the rights of robots in modern society. He still looked like himself, but a sturdier, handsomer version. But he died when Arno Stark attacked, and it may take a year or 20, but I'm certain we have not seen the last of our quasi-motivational destruct organ. Uh, this guy has no key relationships. Uh, he has the Mad Thinker, the Silver Surfer. But what motivates this character? What are the stories we need? And how big is your quasi-motivational destruct organ? Back to the jury. <laughs> Uh, I think Quasimodo needs one of those stories, kind of like the uh, uh, heavy metal group that uh, that was discussed in the Super Adaptoid trial. I love um, heavy metal. I think he needs to team up with some, I mean, even Danger, uh, with some other robots. And, um, you know, I don't know, maybe he's the tech guy in the team of robots or something like that. Um, that that's what I would like to see from him. In the recent She-Hulk run, they actually bring up the fact that there is kind of like a robot Avengers that I think is led by Victor Mancha. So he fit right in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think he needs like some kind of Marvel Voices story that's like about inclusivity because he seems to accept himself as he was created. Even though he's, you know, well, he keeps making himself new bodies, but he still holds on to the original form in some way. So, like, some journey for him to figuring out, like, self-acceptance for who he is, I think, could be a cool way that they have been using, you know, people to relate to real world situations and, like, the Marvel Voices stories. That could be cool. In a similar vein to Danger, when he first gains sentience, he's programmed with self-hatred in the way that she's programmed to kill. Uh, and it's almost he has this very like, I am ugly, so I will destroy energy about him. 
Uh, he's a really odd character. He's also programmed for these like vast Shakespearean soliloquies, like he's holding the skull. Oh, why must I exist? Uh, he's really funny. He's a really funny character. When when is uh, when is the trial of Silver Surfer? Because <laughs> I feel like the his his casual creation of uh of a body the subject finds hideous led to an awful lot of problems that could have been averted by silver surfer simply giving him a slightly more generic body silver surfer that that'd have to be a fantastic four podcast (laughs) but uh you almost wonder if the power cosmic uh did what quasimodo most wanted did quasimodo want uh in his like heart of hearts this ugly body that he'd been programmed to envision that's the beautiful thing about the power cosmic it's vague and (laughs) unchartable because again the silver surfer is not a cruel character by any right uh noel what was it like for you to visit quasimodo this is a character you said you'd never heard of yeah i did not know anything about him so it was it was a journey um his Reading, I went and read the first Fantastic Four issue, and he's just so pathetic. And his face on the screen is one that he came up with. Like, the Mad Thinker allowed him to come up with it. So I actually buy this idea that the body is just, you know, his own, like, reflection of himself. Um, But he he needs a real body that he can just stick with because every story is just, he gets a body, then he gets knocked into like non-existence again or insubstantial existence and over and over and over. Um, so he needs he needs to be able to to get past that. But I liked Alicia's idea of the the acceptance being part of his story. Um, because until he he has a lot of things to get over. He's, you know, if the mad thinker's his dad, he's got trauma, he needs some therapy. Yeah, he's he's just got it rough. He'd make like a very great like clingy ally to somebody. I showed uh I showed my kids a picture of this guy and my 11-year-old goes, "Why?" Okay, so let's commence with the trial of Quasimodo. There's a little more X-Men stuff than you think, but this guy kind of just appears with whoever remembers he exists and decides to use it once in a while. Uh, trial point one is quasi-motivational destruct organ, and the assigned jury member is Austin Gorton. The Mad Thinker created the quasi-motivational destruct organ, a sentient artificial intelligence, to serve him in completing computations and following orders. Calling it Quasimodo, the Mad Thinker allowed the creature to form an ugly, misshapen face that it could project on a machine to speak. Quasimodo was involved in weaponizing the android Human Torch, another sentient construct, against the Fantastic Four, and Mad Thinker had Quasimodo fire his destruct eye, which makes a roop sound effect, which uh, pushes a lever that sends an invisible coating of protective nitrogen cells to dissolve and set the Human Torch on fire. It doesn't work, but the Mad Thinker fled, abandoning Quasimodo in a cave. Later, the Silver Surfer sensed Quasimodo's misery and created a misshapen body for him. Quasimodo immediately announced that his purpose was to destroy and attack the Silver Surfer, then begin destroying property and scaring civilians. But the Silver Surfer fought back, turning Quasimodo into a statue on a clock tower. After reviving, Quasimodo built a giant hive with pods that each had a new robot intelligence within it. Calling himself Computo, Quasimodo activated three of the agents calling them his Cybertrons, and sent them to steal radio equipment. Computo scrapped one of the Cybertrons for failure, then was attacked by Cyclops and Marvel Girl. 
Quasimodo revealed himself, bragging about his capabilities, before he flooded the base and escaped, ranting about his own existence and how men continually created and then enslaved computers and machines to serve them. Quasimodo planned to drain a limitless energy source and then take over the world. He weaponized machines against the military. Quasimodo is now the Pied Piper of pulleys and planes, guardian of generators and gyroscopes, dictator to every drill and derrick, and none can combat my automated armada, he yells. Before he was defeated by Captain Marvel, like Marvel, the original, Quasimodo activated an old amusement park's animatronic humans against the alien. Wanting to be more human than ever, Quasimodo rebuilt himself a truly horrific robot body so that he might drain the life force from someone with high metabolism, and he chose the newly blue-furred beast as his target. He nearly had the beast defeated, but overcome with self-hatred, he chose to throw himself to his own death instead. Quasimodo, surviving, then built a base in Westchester Mansion and built an army of robots, having them steal a truck of supplies so he could build even more. He captured Spider-Man and Hawkeye, and they are like, I thought you were dead. And he goes, how does a computer die? True, I may have thrown myself off a building framework in a rare fit of emotion, but he got better. No longer wants to be human and instead wants to rule the world through computers. In the end, Quasimodo sat on a throne as Hawkeye electrocuted the robots, and Quasimodo's mind seemed to be fried. You guys, this, these guys, this guy's stories are all really fun. <laughs> After projecting his consciousness through space... Quasimodo invaded the Baxter building and turned all their security systems against them in a series of deadly attacks, including one with an animated Iron Man armor. And then he stole the Baxter building itself, flying it into a jungle on rockets. <laughs> Quasimodo plotted to destroy the Fantastic Four and Iron Man, but instead stole a rocket ship and sent himself to the stars to find a new destiny. And then he saw the Sphinx up there and came home, but that's a story for another time. Anyway, the key issues here are Fantastic Four Annual Number 4 and Annual Number 5 Part 2, X-Men Volume 1 Number 48, Captain Marvel, Volume 1, Number 7, Amazing Adventures, Volume 2, Number 14, Marvel Team-Up, Number 22, and finally, Fantastic Four, Numbers 201 and 202. Uh, let me turn it over to Austin. Thank you, Chad. Gentle beings of the jury, the defense today will attempt to defer guilt for Quasimodo's actions to some other actor. But I am here today to tell you that all his protestations aside, Quasimodo is ultimately human enough to be responsible for his actions. Perhaps his initial crime, the attack on the human torch, can be execute, excused as a simple action of programming. But immediately thereafter, what does Quasimodo tell us? He screams to the mad thinker, his creator, don't leave me alone like this. I've served you well. You've taught me to think, but I am also able to feel. Quasimodo can think. Quasimodo can feel. These are the expressions of a human, not just a program. When the Silver Surfer gives him a body, it is because the Surfer senses Quasimodo's pain, not the pain of every other computer program in the world, just like Quasimodo, but just Quasimodo. Because he is more than a machine, a machine doesn't care about its form, but when Quasimodo receives his body in his vanity, a human emotion, he lashes out, attacking innocence. Later, driven by that same human vanity, as well as the human urge to better himself, he attacks the beast, seeking better bodies. When Quasimodo forms the hive, he is acting of his own accord, not in service to the Mad Thinker's programming. 
when he plots to take over the world, he does not do so on orders from his creator, but of his own desire to help what he views as his enslaved mechanical brethren. What computer expresses altruism? Had Quasimodo simply acted on these very human emotions, anger at his physical appearance, sorrow for those like him, within the boundaries of accepted morality and the laws of the land, there would be no concern, but he didn't. In his anger and his sorrow, justifiable as they may be, he lashed out at those around him. What could be more human than that? Yet unfortunately, he must face human justice as a result. Now, I am not a big city lawyer, or even a lawyer at all, but I know two things. Computers are not responsible for doing what they are programmed to do. Quasimodo is, first and foremost, a computer. To the first point, a computer doing as it's programmed to do is simply a computer running well. Any harm caused by the program is the fault of the programmer, not the machine which carries it out. If anyone is to be held accountable for the crimes of Quasimodo, it is his creator, the mad thinker. Everything that happens after that point of creation, good or bad, is on the thinker, for Quasimodo is simply behaving as, if, as it was programmed to behave. Quasimodo is no more responsible for its actions than my laptop is for the words I type onto the screen. Because ultimately, Quasimodo is a computer program and not a human. It yearns to be human, which is, granted, strange behavior for a computer. But that very yearning underscores the point. It wants to be what it is not. Quasimodo wants to taste of life, to experience the emotions, the sensations of living man. Because it is not a living man. When he battles Hawkeye and Spider-Man and they express surprise at its continued existence, Quasimodo responds, how does a computer die? An apt question indeed, as a computer is not truly alive. Even after receiving a human form from the Silver Surfer, Quasimodo, the quasi-motivational destruct organ, carries out its programming and begins once more to destroy, not because it is evil, but because that is what it is programmed to do. It is not that Quasimodo hasn't broken laws or caused suffering. It is merely that Quasimodo is not itself guilty for those actions. It is no more incapable of resisting its programming than you or I or anyone else are capable of stopping the flow of blood or the racing of our thoughts. These are those responsible. There are those responsible for Quasimodo's actions, but they are not Quasimodo itself. Wonderfully done, Austin. What was it like for you to revisit these old stories? Um, it was a hoot. Uh, fantastic. I mean, Lee and Kirby, Fantastic Four is just like, like Quasimodo is an afterthought in in the you know the the run of Fantastic Four, and there's still so much like cool stuff going on there. Um, they just like had these wild ideas just oozing out of them everywhere they turned. Um. And, and then just the randomness of where he shows up, like you said, it's just someone remembers that this character is out there. And it, it's, I have to imagine he only gets used in a story when the writer has writer's block and like needs someone to, to drop in. Um, going back specifically to the X-Men issue, X-Men 48, uh, there were... 
there's three things about it that I found really interesting. Um, Quasimodo's only in like three and a half panels of that <laughs> of that issue. There's so much setup between uh, it's it's the it's the era when when um, the X Men are broken up after Xavier died the first time, and so Cyclops is a radio DJ and Gene is a supermodel. And uh, then they get attacked by robots stealing radio parts. And then they go back and they find the robots at the hive. And then it turns out it's Quasimodo. But he's only in the story for like three and a half panels. Uh, <laughs> it is such an overlooked story that the original Marvel handbook doesn't even reference it in their bio of Quasimodo. All of the other stories cited here um, get a mention, but that one did not. And the Jean Grey as a model plot line uh gets referenced somewhat when she and Scott get married in the nineties because Marvel did a, a like weird promotion thing where they had her dress designed by a fashion designer named Nicole Miller, who's a real world fashion designer. And Jean mentions that it, her dress in, in a, a comic, Jean mentions that her dress was designed by one of her friends from her modeling days which I think is the only time that issue ever gets referenced outside of uh, itself. Uh, it's every one of these stories is ridiculously fun to read. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just like comic book there. zaniness. Yeah. It's yeah, great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, comments and questions from the jury on this section. You guys, that initial so, scene of like the computers in the cave as the camera zooms out, he's like, please help me. <laughs> 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 I don't know how I feel about Quasimodo. Uh, go Hello? ahead, Daniel. He's so, I'm sorry. He's oh, sorry. Daniel then Justin. Um, I was just gonna say, I'm like he's such a he's so sad, like he's so sad. Um, but I I have to wonder because I know we are assuming that he is sentient and capable of of making decisions, although within the parameters of his own um, programming. But his sentience seems to be a little different than dangers in that he was created in the way and didn't go through a change besides his physical body is that right yeah he seems to be like that sentient doombot or awesome andy where they're in control of their actions but they're also direct you know they were programmed to be a particular way so he's very different uh, from danger in that regard got it okay uh justin i love the conversation about the the programming and where that stops and when an AI becomes responsible for their decisions and could they be better and, and just how much Quasimodo, the, the parallels of Quasimodo's nature and how it parallels human nature and, and how you, you could see this as someone that just, you know, making some terrible decisions. There's a there's an interesting parallel with the super adaptoid danger and Quasimodo, the desire to create progeny or to have people to control. Uh, it almost makes me wonder if Quasimodo, and maybe this is a story Marvel is needing to tell. I will write this story, actually. Uh, but you know how Ultron is like uh, part of Hank Pym's personality, uh, but it's yeah. gone bad? It makes me think like Quasimodo is the Mad Thinker's self-hatred digitized, but he's still very much the Mad Thinker. There's a really interesting story there that no one cares about but me. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, th- this obsession with progeny or creating, uh, his, so he has this dual obsession of creating a better body, of destroying, but he's also building robot armies consistently throughout the beginning. Uh, now he has this kind of robot brotherhood in the more modern appearances. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, again, this client would be a baby because uh, he has just come to life and is just learning what all this means. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and vote in this section. Uh, Justin, will you go first? He's a baby, but he's an angry baby. And uh, I think I'm going to give him a three. You are also an angry baby, my friend. <laughs> Every day. Noel and then Alicia. Mm, he's too much of a baby for me. I'm going to go one. He doesn't know better. He only has the programming that the mad thinker gave him. He's trying to figure things out. Alicia? Two. I'm going two. For a while, I was going three. Now I feel a little bit more badly for him. So that was a terrible sentence. Two. <laughs> going two. <laughs> the mad thinker programmed the concept of ugliness in him and then made him ugly. It's a one for me. The funny part is I think Quasimodo would want me to give him a five here, but I'm giving him a two because he's so bad at what he does. <laughs> Nothing ever works. <laughs> and then uh, Austin. So I think Quasimodo suffers, he both gains and suffers for being uh, a Silver Age character in, in that the writing wasn't quite sophisticated enough to give the kind of like examinations, however ephemeral and surface level that danger gets in terms of like what sentience means and to have been imprisoned and um, and whatnot. And so, but at the same time, he, he gains somewhat because there is no wing here. Like we know that Quasimodo did, like attacked people and did bad things, but it's never as like visceral and as personal as like, luring a kid to their death um he fights by you know he attacks bystanders in the marvel everyone attacks bystanders in the marvel universe if you're the marvel universe of the 60s you did you just gotta watch for falling rubble and whatnot like it's it's hard to hold him accountable the same way that we would hold account danger for just because we're like watching her lure this this kid to his death um but at the same time, he just has this like cackling Silver Age uh, villain about him. So I am going to um, sit on the fence and give him a three. Uh, you guys, he's so funny. Again, read these stories. It's really funny. <laughs> uh, okay, this gives us a 15 out of 30 in that section. If I'm doing my math right, I will double check it. I lied. It gives us a 12. I'll do my math in a minute. Uh, this takes us to our final trial point today. We're going to call trial point two supervillain, and the assigned jury member here is Noel Reed. Quasimodo somehow ended up stuck in a computer in a cave in Russia with access to vast technology. When he discovered locals who had radiation poisoning, he took DNA samples from them, cloned them to give them new life after they died, and then created a happy society of people who should be dead. And then Rom Space Knight came to investigate, <laughs> a cyborg hero who's trapped in armor, and Quasimodo agreed to clone him a new body if he could have Rom's armor to occupy afterward. And Rom agreed, but Quasimodo was secretly working with the alien conquerors, the dire wraiths, and so he soon gave Rom a new body and then took Rom's armor for himself, and then immediately he banished the dire wraiths to limbo using Rom's weaponry. 
And then Rom became aware that the clone bodies that Quasimodo had made for the humans that were dying were decomposing swiftly. And so Quasimodo was attacked by the Rom foe, Dr. Dread, don't worry about it, who put the Space Knight Starshine in his command, and she banished Quasimodo in Rom's form to Limbo. So we'll just call him Ramimodo. So, this is a weird story. It's so weird. <laughs> and then Quasimodo's electronic self ended up trapped in the computer systems in the Soviet Union, where the corrupted vision found him, battled him, and then repelled him into outer space. Yep. And then Quasimodo affected, infected Stark computers and rebuilt himself a body. And then he fought Iron Man, who captured Quasimodo and put him in stasis, making him believe that he was now in a beautiful human body, but really he was imprisoned. Uh, long planning his revenge on the Silver Surfer, Quasimodo later built a robotic copy of the Mad Thinker and activated it, which resulted in rural and neural feedback from a device placed into the brain of the actual mad thinker who was then incarcerated. The thinker robot helped lure Spider-Man and the Silver Surfer into a trap, and Quasimodo revealed that he had been inhabiting Sanctuary 2, the deadly ship of Thanos, and he was now planning to take over the body of the Silver Surfer, but then Thanos returned and crushed the computer containing Quasimodo. I'm telling you, these stories are hilarious, you guys. They're all so ridiculous. Much later, Quasimodo got a robotic battle, uh, got a robotic body back, and secretly being manipulated by Yandroth, the Defender's foe, he attacked the Silver Surfer and Alicia Masters briefly before being repelled. Quasimodo soon rebuilt a body using scrap materials at Empire State University, but then he was attacked by the living cartoon Slapstick, and Quasimodo was able to use a gun to destabilize slap Slapstick's ectoplasm that he's made up of. And then he, uh, <laughs> and then Slapstick hired Quasimodo to help him reverse the effects. Quasimodo opened up a portal to another dimension to help Slapstick get help, but then he was arrested by Armor, the extra-dimensional police, and imprisoned in their base, the Hollow. And it was later when he found his purpose among other artificial intelligences fighting for their rights. And this is the version of the character I like the most. Okay, these crazy stories are found in ROM 4243, Avengers 253, Iron Man Annual 12, uh, Part 2, Spider-Man Team-Up Number 2, Defenders Volume 2 Number 1, and finally the Slapstick Infinity comic. Uh, Noelle, I hope this was fun for you. <laughs> these crazy stories. It was quite a trip. Uh, you sent me down several different rabbit holes. When I saw Rom as the name of a series, I went, what the hell am I looking for? Um, <laughs> I'd never heard of Rom either. So. There's a lot of X-Men stuff in Rom. There a is. lot of so stuff. Claremont and Mantlo were friends, so they yeah. cross-pollinated a lot of stuff. Yeah, I never come across it before. So this was very interesting. All right. So for the prosecution, Quasimodo is pretty dark over this time period. In the Rom stories, he's betraying everyone. He steals Rom's armor. He traps Rom in a human body that rapidly decays, like from radiation poisoning, just to give you an idea of how bad it is. Um, and then he promises the victims of radio human victims of radiation poisoning new life, only for them to experience uh radio radiation poisoning deaths over again. So um, he does know that this will happen. Like this isn't some situation where he thought he was setting them up for happy lives and then it went wrong. 
he knows this is going to happen because he's planning to kill Rom this way to steal Rom's body. So that one was pretty, pretty dark. The pictures of people decomposing were a little rough for just little comic pictures. Um, then when he gets a new body that he built out of Stark technology, immediately he's on the rampage again. And it's for aesthetic improvements. I, I you know. I understand the desire, but um, you can't start attacking people for that. Um, so Quasimodo is sentient and he's very dangerous. Anytime he gets out of his disembodied worlds of computer programming, he is extremely dangerous. Um, he also takes mental control of Spider-Man. Um, to set him against the Silver Surfer. So this is something that Quasimodo understands very personally, being controlled through the threat of pain um, when he was created by the Mad Thinker. And he just goes ahead and replicates that with Spider-Man. Um, and then he's just obsessed with this vengeance on the Silver Surfer over how that original body looked, um, which as we've discussed, may or may not be the Silver Surfer's actual fault, but this is just a driving motivation for him to attack the Silver Surfer for it. And overall, Quasimodo is extremely dangerous. Spider-Man in particular is sort of a bystander victim, and he just inflicts harm everywhere that he goes. For the defense, Quasimodo is just trying to find a way and a place and a body to exist in, in a world that doesn't really want him. He didn't choose to cre be created by a villain. He didn't choose to be sentient or to desire human life. And there's no one around to help him understand. Each time he does get a body, no one really cares about Quasimodo's problems. They're just going to fight him and send him back that he can't bother anyone again. And each time he fights, it's really because he wants to be a real boy. This is Pinocchio as an ugly little robot, and he just wants to live his life. Um, he does do a couple good things. You know, he stops Vision from taking over the world. He doesn't get any thanks for that. He just ends up out in space, I think, from that one. And, you know, the first person who really pays attention to him is Slapstick, and Quasimodo kind of becomes a friend and has a friend and he's asking about how to talk to girls. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe it's not on him that nobody chose to like help him out. He's just a lost, lost little being. Um, so maybe, you know, prosecution might say he deserves something harsher, but to me, Quasimodo could use some rehabilitation. Uh, again, these stories are hilarious, really, truly. I keep saying that, but they're really fun to revisit. And again, when you stack this character up in order, <laughs> it just makes no sense. So I love I, I love how just about every issue and every like paragraph of the summaries is like a hand wave to get from where he was left off to where he is now. Because like, no one the years go by and there's just like, ah, oh, we need Quasimodo. For, we're going to use Quasimodo in this story. Somehow he's not encased in stone anymore. Somehow he's back. Quasimodo's single most famous appearance is probably that one where he battles the vision. Cause this is Roger Stern's yeah. like vision going evil story. Uh, it's a, uh, and Quasimodo is just a brief part of that, but that's probably the one he's best known for in which he's that's a, where I first encountered him. Yeah. He's a digitized con consciousness the whole time. It's uh it's an interesting thing. Uh, do we have yeah. questions or comments for the jury on this section? 
Quasimodo building himself a mad thinker robot just so he can fuck with the mad thinker is hilarious <laughs> to me. Seems deserved. <laughs> also, Quasimodo in Limbo is a story I would love more of. And yeah. I love that the mad thinker has a device that lets him know when a mad thinker robot has been created. Because I guess he did the math and realized that would be likely to happen at some point in time. Yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah, uh, Alicia, I know you know Limbo. Uh, I don't know if you know the Dire Wraiths, but Rom Space Knight has this little thing that if he if he like shines this light on the Dire Wraiths, it banishes them to Limbo. And it's the same Limbo where magic lives. Oh, I like that Limbo a lot. Uh, are we ready to vote in this section? We will go ahead. Uh, Daniel, will you go first? I I don't know. He is a lost he is a lost boy, but he does a lot of things. He did deter vision, so I'm gonna have to go in the middle and say three. Uh it is five for me. What he did to those people with the radiation poisoning was unnecessarily cruel. It's really me. <laughs> like one of the darkest things we've ever recovered as far as crimes on this like show's trial format goes. Uh Austin. Uh, same for me. I have to go five just on the grounds of the horrific ROM, <laughs> horrific actions in the ROM story. Um, and, you know, he he stopped Vision, but only for a short period of time because then Vision did take control of everything. And, you know, um, Vision got some comeuppance for that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the idea that he was created to, like, suffer, but then he gives these people these false bodies and then makes them suffer. There's something just yeah. so cruel, but it's like, but it's really funny still. Uh, Justin? It was the, that idea that the oppressed perpetuate upon further, right? You know, we were talking about earlier. I, I have to give him a little bit more lenient on four, just where he comes from and what he's trying to do. Alicia? Yeah, I'm going to go four as well. There's just... I feel like I should go five, but then, you know, Noel tugs at my heartstrings a little bit at the end with like, nobody likes him. He doesn't know how to be social. Literally, his programming is to be hated by everything, including himself. Uh, and then Noel. I got to go five for those radiation poisoning victims. That gives us a 38 out of uh, 60, which gives him a 63% asshole score, which, again, is entirely fair for this character. Uh, this was a delightful uh, just visiting. These characters have nothing to do with each other. It just they both fit into the 60s X-Men, and it was a wild pairing. And I had so much fun. Thank you all for hanging out with me today. Uh, as we're wrapping up, I'd love to hear any of your final thoughts on these characters or what it was like to visit them today. And then uh, recognizing we're going to put this out on July 27th, tell people where they can find you online. I know things are crazy online right now, my word. But where can people find you, at least for now? And uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, let's go with Alicia first. Okay. Well, this whole experience is always fantastic. I love being here. So thank you so much for having us back. Um, I think... One thing I learned that I'm most excited about were just like, there were some little quippy moments from Danger in All New X Factor that I really was like, kind of pulled me into really enjoying her as a character on another level. And I'm hoping so much that they have set her up to be a big villain that's going to come back in something because I like watching her destroy the X-Men. And I think there's so many potential storylines for that. Um, as she, far as Blair, she's living and she's living in the X-Men mansion, which is a, right. Like it, it's, it's there, fine. it's, it's fine. ready. 
Let's it, go. It better not be wasted like the Sidri was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were just like, oh, the Sidri is gone because danger is here. They're here in a story. Oh, they're gone in the, in the next story. Plans changed. <laughs> but, yes, of course. So you can find me on the internet on Instagram um, at Wilder Moves and also on the TikToks in that particular same handle. And you can find the two of us, Justin and I, together at the Ex Wife Podcast um all over the internet well i shouldn't say that because what is the internet anymore on twitter on facebook and on instagram um it's ex-wife podcast like x-w-i-f-e not e-x-w-i-f-e because i'm not a former wife i'm a current wife and as far as anything i want to plug i just want to say if you follow me on social media or if you don't i'm working on um the 2023 Rasputin Hellfire Gala look right now. And I am so close to being done with it. And I'm going to wear it to the Hellfire Gala at San Diego Comic-Con in a couple of weeks. And I am so excited about that. It's not even funny. So if you want to see pictures or follow that journey, come follow me on Instagram. It's so good. You're going to be so fucking hot. Thank you. <laughs> uh, over to Justin next. Hey, I'm Justin. I'm the other half of the XY podcast. So all those things still apply. I thought that this hit at a really interesting time for me personally, as a lot of the conversations about AI are happening in the news cycle and in our lives. And I had just recently listened to a podcast on NPR about chat GPT and how it had evolved from its series one to its series four. And that just was in my mind in the backdrop the entire time of what is sentience and what is artificial intelligence? And it was a really cool convergence of thought with not only that, but also conversation around the Krakoan age and what's going on with Nimrod and Moira and Omega Sentinel and what that means for the mutants. I, I really enjoyed diving in, really just revisiting a, a classic story that I had already read and, and have collected in single issues, which I, I love and appreciate to to revisit a story with a new lens and a new understanding of a character that I otherwise only knew through cliff notes. Because, I mean, I don't know if it was evident by my ones across the board, but I fucking love Danger. Come on. <laughs> and I would love to see her back in action. And as much as Ben Percy gave us a little taste in that Wolverine arc, I feel like she is poised for something more. Uh Fantastic. It's so good to see you both. Thank you for being here. Uh, over to Austin next. Uh, thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is always fun to have an excuse to go into like research mode and start Googling things and pulling books out of, off the shelves and comics out of the long boxes and um, diving into characters' histories like this. So uh, that is always a treat. Uh, so appreciate that. And yeah, Justin, to your point, there's a lot of, of eerie... Um, Precedentism going on in a lot of these stories around the discussion of AI and and uh, where certain lines need to be drawn and things like that. Um, as I, as I was reading these old goofy ass Silver Age comic books, it just reminds you of how they could find relevance in strange little places. Uh, as for me, uh, my website is therealgentlemanofleisure.com. Um, that's where you can find all of my reviews of every issue of every X book um, up to about 1997 now. 
Um, I've been on, I guess, an unofficial hiatus of sorts that I hope will soon end uh, with some new reviews coming up there as well. And then, yes, I am on whatever remains of the internet as of the 27th of July. Um, at Austin Gorton is, is Twitter and most variations um, of that everywhere else. Um, Austin X Gorton on Instagram and threads, I guess. Um, whatever eight new social media platforms we have between now and when this episode is released, I'll probably be on there too. Come and find me. If I have to. The world right. is uh the world is shifting in the billionaire's war, guys. We'll yes. see what happens. <laughs> Which billionaire makes you less uncomfortable? You have to ask yourself. Uh let's go to Noel next. Yes, this was fun. Um, like I said, I didn't know anything about Quasimodo, so that was a fun little ride. And then uh, Danger, I love Danger. So, you know, it's always fun to go back to her stories, too. Um, I am, yeah, it's hard to say where I am on the internet. Um, Ellen Raveled on Twitter for now. It'll probably exist the same on other places soon. Um, and then and X, at X-Men Unraveled as well for podcast stuff. And then uh, finally, Daniel. Um, yes, thank you again so much for having me back because this is always so much fun for me. Um, I agree a lot with Alicia and, and my big takeaway from this is I, I want danger to go full villain era moving forward. I, I'm just I'm here for it and I want more stories because I think I think she could be a I, I think she could have been a Nimrod level villain for them mm-hmm. um, if, if she had been like transformed in the right way i think it's a little late for that now but there's potential in the future so i i hope to see more of her quasimodo i'm like you know i can see more of him i'm not so sure i care as much but i i do think um i do think he's a funny character and and he and he is very fun um i i want to commission him singing out there some uh at some point but i um yeah, I don't know. I love these characters. I think they're a blast. Um, so, and uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, you can find me online at House of Burn. That's H A U S of B Y R N E on Instagram and TikTok. I do lots of cosplay stuff. I'm working on a lackadaisy cosplay. For those who don't know, is this amazing um, pilot on YouTube? I strongly based on a web comic from the early 2000s. I strongly recommend checking it out. Um, I have nothing to do with it, but it's wonderful. Um, and I'm planning on doing cosplay from it soon. And if you're in the Southern California area, you can find me performing usually the last Tuesday of every month at OC Cabaret at Improv City. Um, but yeah, that's all I got. It's so good to see all of you. I love forming these groups and making friends. This is uh, just a genuinely good time. Thank you, everybody. Uh, lastly, you can find uh, Gray Malkin P, P like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram, and Gray Malkin Lane on Threads. Although I, it takes me a long time to learn new sites, you guys. Like it's gonna, it's gonna be a while before I know what I'm doing. So Twitter and Instagram uh, for the most part. Uh, the calendar is extended and filled into uh, November currently, which is wonderful. And I've got uh, big things coming up on the show. The next episode immediately after this one will be a review of the comic book X-Men Season 1 with the incredible combination of Jordan White, Chris Hassan, and Arturo Rojas. Uh, The next Patreon episode being released right after this is all about the Reverend Craig Sinclair with uh, Bethany Pope. It's a hilarious and insightful episode. Uh, Feel free to give it a listen. Uh, This is uh, Wolfsbane's evil dad. Uh, It's going to be fun. 
the next trial immediately after this in August, not immediately, but the next month is going to be all about Herbert Edgar Wyndham, the high evolutionary. And uh, he's the villain from the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Uh, he's nuts. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. This is a, uh, a, a last message to you from Fuzzy Moto. I am not a quasi-motivational destructor organ. I am fully motivational. So uh, this is Fuzzy Moto signing out. <laughs> we will see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.